back from like the longest vacation, summer vacation. I think this is maybe our longest break. I mean, what do you think? Is yeah, it? Yeah, we've done this maybe over like a Christmas, New Year's, but definitely okay. during the summer. Yeah. Doing like a full two weeks. Yeah. Because I feel like normally we'll like prep something and like what, like we prepped the Peter Pan episode, but yeah. you know, that's a little different. And yeah, then I just, <laughs> I don't know. We were just out. A at lot. the beach, getting sunburnt. I'm still peeling my skin. Yeah, but it has, it was good, and mm-hmm. we're ready to start season 13, <laughs> a bad luck season. <laughs> and this is this month is four years from when we started recording. Oh my god! Because we started in August after the beach of 2018. That's crazy. And then we released our first episode November 1st of 2018. That's bananas. I know. I just don't understand how that happened. I don't either. <laughs> it's been a really long time. Mm-hmm. But we didn't think of anything really special for this season because it was just season 13. But I thought it might be fun. I looked up the uh, horoscopes for the days the two women were born. <gasps> and oh, I thought I maybe like that. Maybe before just the two of us, we can yeah. read them each week and see if it matches. It's kind of creepy. Oh, I love that idea. <laughs> like, what if we just look up the horoscope for their birthday? And see That's perfect. How it goes. So I looked those up for this time. Okay. We also had a ton of like deaths while we were on vacation, like famous women oh, deaths. Agreed. So first we lost Nichelle Nichols, who famous from Star Trek, the first uh, interracial kiss ever on mm-hmm. television, such an inspiration. Then Pat Carroll, obviously oh. Ursula. We just talked about her a couple weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And then just two days ago, Olivia Newton-John. So sad. Yeah. Oh, God. Legends. All of them. What bummers. But maybe instead of singing physical this week, we'll just like have a second of silence for all three of them. That sounds good. And then we'll go back (laughs) to normal next week (laughs) because we can't get that part up. Okay. But um, what are we doing? We are Herstory. All right. On the rocks (laughs) with Katie and Alex. This is a podcast where we talk about famous women in history. We talk about good women and bad women and fictional women and non-fictional women from all times and places because women have nuance. But keep in mind, uh, if this is your first week or your 500th, uh, we are drinking the entire time. (laughs) And we're not historians. Yeah. We don't know what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. I especially Mm -hmm. know nothing about British government it's pretty embarrassing (laughs) but it will be fine and you can correct us oh please do because I know like I mean we're doing two pretty big people to start this season Mm -hmm. off and I was thinking about that a lot with Ella Fitzgerald's story because she was a really like private person so I'm like I know that there's going to be things that like the timeline is a little messed up or whatever so just bear in mind we're doing this in a week (laughs) With all internet-based sources. Um, so if we're wrong, it's because someone else was wrong before us. Exactly. So. And just let us know. <laughs> just please do. We love getting corrected. But if you've never listened to this show before, the way it's going to work is Katie's going to tell a story and serve me a signature cocktail for her famous woman or infamous woman or little-known woman. And then I am going to tell her a story and serve her a signature cocktail. We're going to talk about what the ladies look like, and we're going to compare the two ladies at the end. And just have a whole bunch of fun treats on Patreon uh, if you want to go over there afterwards. Yeah. It's going to be a good time. I'm excited. It will be. (laughs) Um, But again, usually now we would have a little bit about how busy you are. but (laughs) And then we would sing Let's Get Physical by Olivia Newton-John. But instead, we're just going to be quiet for a second. Mm. And just remember all the three women I mentioned that died and more in this past two weeks. (laughs) 
so who are you doing and what does she look like? Okay, I am doing Ella Fitzgerald. Um, she was a woman who I was shocked to learn in my research was constantly told that she wasn't pretty. What? Like everything written about her was like, well, she looks very homely and matronly and she looks awful, but man, can she sing. <laughs> Even like Ebony Magazine was like, can she just put some makeup on? Like, my God. <laughs> it was like really upsetting and I totally disagree I would describe Ella Fitzgerald as a gorgeous black woman who was a singer in the I mean she started in like the 20s and 30s and 40s uh she has these full lips these almond shaped eyes and this big smile that would absolutely like light up a room when whenever she would sing because that's when she was the most comfortable also i said she was a singer in the 20s that's not true she was born in 1917 um close enough (laughs) not yet uh Um, she was not well dressed in her younger years. Uh, we'll come to find out what was going on there in the story. But when she was an adult, she was always dressed in these gorgeous dresses that flattered her generous curves and had like these wide, deep necklines. They were so pretty. Her dark hair was often curled and pulled up. And when she wore jewelry, she wore it well, especially earrings. I always notice her earrings in photos. She's so lovely. I know. I've always thought that too. Like, especially like in younger photos of her. Oh yeah. She has a beautiful face. Like I think about like, if you go to like the Ella Fitzgerald essentials playlist on Apple music, the cover is that black and white photo of her. And she's like looking up and her face is like glowing. And she has these beautiful long eyelashes. And like really pretty skin. Really pretty skin. And I just, I didn't know that she like almost did like she like didn't get gigs sometimes because she wasn't like because she girl. wasn't thin and gorgeous like and I just I didn't know that I mean she was also kind of famous in that weird like golden Hollywood era where you had yeah. to look like one very specific way mm-hmm. okay I got I mean I guess I don't know it makes sense for the time but I've always thought that she was lovely I thought so too so uh, apparently we're wrong <laughs> <laughs> like usual yeah so <laughs> I this week I'm doing Margaret thatcher and we all kind of know what she looks like but she's pretty much perpetually an old woman like in my head every (laughs) picture of her she has short like golden hair that's lightly curled and perm slash helmeted like up on her head she's always in like a blue or black or pink like business suit but she has lots of big pearl earrings big pearl necklaces big brooches like as accessories to her business attire Mm -hmm. she's got a pretty thin-lipped smile and like pretty distinct sharp features like Mm -hmm. a sharp chin a sharp nose um and she's been played by Dozens and dozens of women over the years, but in the movie, Meryl Streep plays her, does a great job. And then in The Crown, Gillian Anderson plays her and just kills it, which I was shocked because I'm always, to me, she's Scully, you know, from X-Files. And she's also an American actress, right? Yeah. Actually, so it's funny because John Lithgow is American. Yeah. And it's funny that the the two prime ministers were played by American people. You know, I guess they just cast very well in that show. And she did a really awesome job. She was very stiff. (laughs) Jillian Anderson. Um, But I think everybody can kind of picture Margaret Thatcher. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She's, I don't know. She's like a little bit famous. Yeah. (laughs) 
All right. So what am I drinking tonight? So this is called a tisket a tasket. Uh, so it's named after uh, her first big hit song, but it's designed after one of her other famous songs, Black Coffee. So this is an ounce and a half of bourbon. And then it's a half ounce each of Campari, sweet vermouth, and coffee liqueur. Mm. And you shake it all up, pour it over ice, and serve it with a maraschino cherry. Cheers. Cheers. Ooh. Mm. It's very deep flavor. Mm -hmm. I love Campari. I don't Mm. think I've ever had it with coffee liqueur, so that's really interesting. Yeah, they actually balance each other out really well. They do. It's funny because I was like, is this going to be good? Like, is this going to be a good choice? So what I did when I was home, I unscrewed both of the bottles and like put them up to my nose and smelled them together. And I was like, ooh, it kind of smells like a chocolate covered cherry right. or something. Yeah, <laughs> Very aromatherapy of you yes. to do it that way. That's great. Um, yeah, this is lovely. And I'm d- really enjoying the ice on this oh, God, hot, hot, hot day. Hot. <laughs> it's so hot. I was walking around outside the other day during like the heat advisory with the girls. We were in um, Habit of Grace. Mm. Um, where there's no shade and I was like why on the beach is this heat so fun and (laughs) here it's terrible um okay so what do I know about Ella um she's very famous for having a super powerful voice Mm -hmm. um I feel like she sang at an inauguration yes she did um at some point I I feel like she was famous during the civil rights era. Mm -hmm. Um, But I don't know a lot about her personal life. I know that I post a lot about her on Instagram. I don't know a lot about like her legacy or what she left behind. Was that her that got annoyed at Beyonce for singing one of her songs? I don't think so. There was some. No, no, because she passed away in the early 90s. Okay. In the 90s. So then this was. Oh, that was Aretha Franklin. Oh. <laughs> that was a moment. Okay. <laughs> but, yeah, so I, I don't know a lot about her, so I'm excited to learn more. Okay. So she has a, a wild story, and she is an incredible person. Really? Yes. Like, just a really downright just a good really person. a really fucking good person. Man, I wish I was a good person. <laughs> right? That's the last that nobody's ever going to say that when they're doing my story. You know what? She was just really kind. <laughs> so, but yeah, we can definitely say that about her. Uh, again, she didn't give a lot of interviews. So, like, some of the parts of her life are a little more, like, hazy than others so i just want to make that clear that again i put this together in just a couple days so if i'm missing key parts and you're disappointed i do apologize uh and i got most of this from the history chicks um there was also like a youtube documentary on her um and there was a grunge video that was like 15 minutes long that were like details about her life that went into some of the things that the history chicks didn't um but yeah so those are my sources oh and wikipedia of course (laughs) okay Ella Fitzgerald was born on April 25th, 1917 in Newport News, Virginia. She was the daughter of William Fitzgerald and Temperance, or she like to be called Tempe Henry. That's so cute. I love that name. Uh, who were not married but living together until Ella was about two and a half years old. Uh, but then her dad split, and then in the early 1920s, her mother moved in with her new partner, a Portuguese immigrant named Joseph de Silva, and they made the move up north to Yonkers in Westchester County, New York, as a part of the great migration that we so often talk about that was happening at this time. Right. 
Uh, her half-sister, Frances de Silva, whom she stayed close with for all of her life, uh, was born in 1923. Can I just say, Frances, Ella, and Temperance, <laughs> like what a triad of names. I mean, come on. Frances, Ellie, and Tempe? How Frankie? Could- I I've always loved the name Frankie for a girl. So I think cute. it's so cute. How could any of that get better? I don't know. Uh, by 1925, Ellen and her family had moved to a very mixed neighborhood in New York. Uh, that's often described as a poor Italian area, but she was like, no, like everybody lived there. <laughs> she was like, we had black people, Italians, Jews, Spanish people all lived in this area, which was not quite the norm. She was like, normally like areas of New York were a lot more segregated, but she was like, we didn't live in a Harlem. That was like all people that looked like us. She was like, we lived in a very diverse neighborhood. Um, but even in this kind of melting pot area, Tempe was frowned upon because it was still highly unusual for a woman to be living with a man she wasn't married to, especially if she had a kid with him and had a kid from another man that she was not married to. Right. So Tempe was not seen in the best light, unfortunately. Well, this um, is the 1920s, you're saying, right? Yeah. So this is like the end of like the temperance movement. Exactly. And like- you know, women are put on a pedestal for being religious, yeah. right? And, like, mm-hmm. you had to be act and be a very certain way. Yeah, exactly. And she was just focused on working hard as a laundress, going to their local Baptist church, and providing a better life for her kids up in the north. Uh, Ella began her formal education at the age of six and was an outstanding student. She made a lot of friends, and she moved through a variety of schools before attending Benjamin Franklin Junior High School in 1929. Uh, But starting in third grade, she loved dancing, and she really had one guy that she admired. His name was Earl Snake Hips Tucker. (gasps) Snake Hips? Yeah. Like, when she was, like, getting older, she wanted to be called Ella Snake Hips. Like, she loved him because he started, like, the shimmy. And, like, there are pictures of him. His body literally looks like an S. So a lot of the modern dance moves, like, come from him and the way he would, like, move his body and move around the stage. You could kind of, like... Like, smoothly gyrate, I yeah. guess? Okay. Yeah. I it just, that's so cool. Yeah. He just, like, moved his body in a really unique way, especially for the time. Like, what Elvis was doing was nothing compared to what right. when they're Snake like, Hips was doing. Bring the camera up. Yeah. Ollie, get his torso. <laughs> Corrupt the young girl. <laughs> um, and so Ella was really wanting to be a dancer when she was a kid. She would perform for her peers on the way to school and at lunchtime. <laughs> and she was pretty popular like she just got along with a lot of people uh she described herself as a total tomboy she said that people would have to get after her because she was a wild girl just always running around and getting into trouble (laughs) but she was also a hard worker her family wasn't bringing in quite enough money so at a young age she started picking up odd jobs One of her first jobs was working outside of a bordello as a lookout girl. (laughs) And so she would stand at the corner and if the police came, she would sound the alarm uh, if they were coming their way to like raid the place. Uh, then she worked for an illegal gambling operation. Um, it was kind of like, remember what Stephanie St. Clair did? She would have kids that would like run the numbers game. So like they'd go to these people's houses, take their bets, bring the bets back. And if they won, they'd bring them their money. So we know that she was a very trustworthy girl. (laughs) So after a long day's work, Ella and her little girlfriends who were just fucking babies at this time went to the hottest spot in Harlem to have a good time. And that was the Savoy ballroom. 
Now, you would think that Ella would be there for the music because she's obviously a musician later in life, um, as most people were at the Savoy, because this was where the hottest new acts uh, in black music especially were playing mm-hmm. constantly. It's in the heart of Harlem. Everybody's there. But it's Ella, the 20s. Yes. This is perfect. <laughs> it is. But Ella was really there to dance. Uh, she would get in there and dance for as long as she could. It was her first passion. But... Everything would change when Ella was 15 and her mother passed away very suddenly. And so her dad's gone, yeah? Oh, yeah. Oh, no. So the story's changed a few times over the years. Some say that she died in a car accident. Ella would often tell the story that her mom was driving and, like, got into a car accident and, like, kind of put herself in front of the boy she was driving with to, like, save his life. But we don't know if this is true. Some other sources say she had a heart attack. So I don't know 100%, but... Either way, this totally upturns her life because her household without her mother is suddenly not a safe place for her. Her stepfather, Joe, disapproves of her working all day, out all night dancing, so he starts to keep her in the house with him and unfortunately starts abusing her. There are no details about what this entailed, and we don't really need to know other than Ella did not feel safe there, so uh, she moved she thankfully had uh an aunt that noticed what was going on her aunt virginia um so she picks the girl up and she's like we're getting you out of this situation immediately and she brings her to live with her in harlem which is where she wanted to be anyways it's where she was all the time (laughs) so her aunt is this is her biological aunt yes i think it's her mother's sister okay so she had kind of moved up north when they did yes okay Mm -hmm. and so she was living in harlem she realizes what's going on at home and she gets ella out of there okay but her little sister frankie uh i actually don't know what happens to frankie i don't know if she was still in the house because maybe joe treated her better okay because that was his biological daughter oh right so this is her half sister yeah this is her half sister so it was unclear of what happened it's a real cinderella situation Mm -hmm. Um, so she moves into her, with her aunt in Harlem. Uh, and I think at this point, Ella's feeling a little mad, a little rebellious. She just wants to be out on her own. So she drops out of school and really starts like running the streets now, doing her jobs full time out all hours of the night. She's dancing for tips, like not in like a strip club kind of way, but just like, she's just there like, and she'll dance and people give money to her. Like. Yeah, like people play music on the street. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so she's being pretty wild and working in these obviously illegal operations. And soon the law catches up with her. She is a young black female working for multiple illegal operations. And so she is placed in the colored orphan asylum in Riverdale in the Bronx. Oh my gosh. And then when the orphanage proved too crowded, she was moved to the New York Training School for Girls, a state reformatory school in Hudson, New York. And life here was rough. There was a lot of rampant abuse going on at this school that a lot of people were turning a blind eye towards. And like, like physical abuse. And it's so fucked up because like, decades later when she's a big star they were like oh like one of our alumni do you want to come back and give a talk (laughs) she's like no i don't she's like no fuck you guys like that was a horrible place for me what is wrong with you uh and it was so bad that within a year she actually runs away like breaks out of this place runs back to harlem somehow i don't know how because that was kind of far up in new york it is really unfortunate to me that like anytime orphanages are like 
made into stories, whether it's like Annie or Oliver or like whatever. It's like the kids are always being abused. Always. Like, what is wrong with the world that we like treat children like this? It's like, wow, your parents abandon you. Like, let me treat you like shit. Yeah. And I get that they're usually like state run and don't have Mm -hmm. fucking money. Mm -hmm. And like, nobody wants to work there. No excuse. No, no excuses. No. Um, so she runs away, goes back to Harlem and she knows that like the authorities are looking for her. So this forces her to live on the streets because she can't go back to her aunt's house. She's like, I can't go back there and bring all of this trouble into her life. You know? So Ella is a homeless, but ambitious teen right now. And she always told people, she goes, I don't care how I do, but she goes, I'm going to make it. So she lives in a synagogue like Madonna. <laughs> I don't know where like people, they were just like, yeah, she just slept wherever she could. A rat infested apartment mm-hmm. like Heidi Klum mm-hmm. under the flower table <laughs> like Marsha P. Johnson. <laughs> New York is covered with these women. Covered with these women. Um, so she is like, I think this is my chance. I'm going to go to amateur night at the Apollo. So How old is the Apollo? Very old. Girl, rub <laughs> that stump. <laughs> so the way it works is that you put your name on a card put it in and if yours gets picked you have one chance to get up there and wow the crowd it's very intense and like karaoke on steroids yes (laughs) and the crowd at harlem famously either loved you or really fucking hated you like throwing cabbages yes (laughs) (laughs) and of course ella's card gets oh god the heart her heart's beating so fast i can feel it so she's watching from the wings and she was like i'm gonna go out there i'm gonna dance my heart out because she was like i'm a dancer that's what i'm here to be and right before her was like the anderson sisters or something like that i don't think it was the andersons but it was some sister group that were like the best dancers and they were like the best dancers in harlem at this time and so she was like well how the fuck am I going to follow that? Like, what? No, no. So then they finish. She gets put out on stage and she's just standing there because she's like, well, I can't dance. So now what am I going to do? And apparently people start booing her and they're like, what the hell is she going to do? Like they are starting to turn. They're I mean, like rioting. Dude, this little old woman was talking to Doc. She goes, yeah, that little girl got there. We said, boo, get off the stage. <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> like, oh my God, this is like a 15 year old homeless girl. No, God bless that woman <laughs> for speaking her truth. <laughs> so they are like about to come with the hook, get her off the stage. And <laughs> the, the guy is like, oh my gosh, just sing something. So she's like, okay, I know this one song called like Judy. So she's like, play Judy. And they That's start playing it. I know. <laughs> and she starts singing. And the crowd goes quiet. She completely blows them away. They have her sing another song and she ends up winning the whole damn night. An encore. Yeah. She wins the whole thing. No way. The prize was $25. (laughs) And that'll get you less than a bag of dog food these days. (laughs) And she realizes she's like, Oh my gosh, I am a singer. (laughs) 
this is great. So she was like, <laughs> good to know. Yeah, this is wonderful. So she's like, all right, I'll just go around to all these amateur nights and I'll sing and I'll make money. And so she just kind of works her butt off for like a year doing these amateur nights, which reminds me a lot of Fanny Bryce. She's grinding. Remember, she that's what she would do. She was like, I just did every single fucking competition there was for singing that had some kind of cash prize so many of the like black american women performers that we talk about have this same experience Mm -hmm. of like i'm just gonna travel and sing it's either that or you're with a church group going Mm -hmm. around the country that was it Mm -hmm. it's crazy so she was like all right this is going great but i need more than money she was like i need a break So she entered this contest in which the prize was that you got to perform for a week at the Harlem Opera House. So she's like, I won't be making any money, but I'll gain a lot of exposure. She wins. Like the Super Bowl halftime Mm -hmm. show. (laughs) She wins, of course. And she does her week at the Harlem Opera House. And at the end of the week, the next band who is set to perform is the Chick Webb Band. Or the Chick Webb Orchestra. And... Chick Webb himself, who's this famous jazz musician, um, catches her act in that slim overlap of time. He sees her. He thinks, like, she's good, but, you know, he isn't really ready to scoop her up quite yet because he thought, well, we already have a male singer, and when you bring a lady into the band, things just get really complicated. And he goes, also, there's a matter of her appearance. Ella was a homeless teen, (laughs) Uh, not the glamorous woman we know today. She was gawky, unkept, poorly dressed. Her hair was a mess. Like, anything she was making was not enough to, like, get her to even, like, barely scrape the surface of surviving on the New York streets. (laughs) I had, like, two working parents and, like, lived in a suburban area, and I looked like shit as a teenager. Can you imagine? No. Um... He he said to his his like manager or the guy who was managing the band, he goes, You want me to put that on stage? <gasps> which makes me so angry. That is he's, so rude. He's great later on. Okay. But <laughs> I mean I I do get it. Like she's like a gangly weird teenager. Right. Uh, but, but money fixes a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but thankfully for Ella, even though the band bore Chick's name, he was the drummer, not the band leader, who was out front. So the band leader was like, Look, we're not passing up on her. He said, she's a diamond in the rough. A diamond in the <laughs> diamond rough. Diamond in the rough. <laughs> Excuse me, Aladdin? So, <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, I missed it you. It is me, Kazi. <laughs> <laughs> so he brings Nothing her back. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, he brings her back. <laughs> so he brought her back to Chick's dressing room, and he was like, I want her to sing again for you. And she sings and he's like badgering him to let this girl into the band. <laughs> this band's a democracy. And he's like, oh my God, fine. <laughs> like, so he's like, all right, I'll let her in. I'll let her come to Connecticut with us. We have a, we have a gig up there at Yale doing like a school dance. So he's like, Ivory she can test out <laughs> with the band at Yale. So she goes up. She's a total hit with the audience. Rory loves her. Rory's obsessed. <laughs> Logan is sulking in the corner. And Chick keeps her on and officially hires her for $12.50 a week. That's a lot. Yeah. It's a good bit. She and the band got along really well together. And they became kind of like her big brothers. She said they would tease her about her clothes and her shoes and her appearance. But they also taught her how to take care of herself because 
she didn't have a mother figure teaching her how to groom herself and how to do her hair and how to wash up and how to dress. So they had to teach her the basics of grooming. <laughs> like they were poor thing. Your family, you it's know, like you've gone through puberty since your mom died. Like, yeah, let's help you out. Let's help you. And I mean, she is 17 when all this happens. So another factor is, is that she's underage and she's a warden of the state. And all of a sudden this group of men are like, <laughs> let's get her on the road. <laughs> It's illegal. It doesn't look good. It is illegal. You cannot transport a minor across state lines, guys. So Chick Webb and his wife decide, well, uh, in order to make sure that everything's legit and Elle is taken care of and none of us get arrested, Chick legally adopts her. (laughs) Chick? I know. And wife. I know. (laughs) Do they have any babies of their own or this is just like... I didn't look that up doesn't matter it uh, doesn't matter <laughs> um and i some people also think that this was a way for him to be like i'm gonna adopt this girl i'm not sleeping with her she's not sleep like this is not a sexual situation like we're here to take care of her you know to kind of kind of quash any kind of weird feelings people might have about yeah. again this 17 year old girl on the road with 20 men right. <laughs> makes, i mean it makes sense it makes perfect sense yeah and He truly was a father figure to her, even though he wasn't sure about this diamond in the rough at first. (laughs) They became very close, and he was so protective of her, which was a really nice thing to have during this time because the big band lifestyle was full of drugs and alcohol and predatory men. But Ella was surrounded by people she considered her family. I mean, her brothers and her dad. So it just makes me happy to think that People were looking out for this girl, which is not common in this scenario. Especially because she she had already had such a bad experience mm-hmm. with her own father and her own stepdad to now have, like, these men kind of step up to the plate for her. Yeah. That's, like, the other side of the coin that she's right. living in now. That's really nice for her. It's wonderful. So she starts touring with the band and recording music with them, and soon her first recording comes out. It's a song called Love and Kisses. And all she wants is to hear it be played from a jukebox. She was like, that would be the coolest thing. (laughs) Even though she's like playing live to audiences all the time. She's like, I just want to hear it played from a jukebox. But at this point, all the jukeboxes were in like bars. So she would stand outside. They wouldn't let her in. So she would pay guys. She'd be like, here's some money. Can you please just go in and play the song, this song on the jukebox? And she would stand outside of the club and hear her song being played. And she was just so excited. Isn't that really the cutest sweet. That's thing? really sweet. I mean, I imagine that's like the first time you drive around in your car and hear your song on the radio. Uh-huh. You know? Yeah. I feel like that's the feeling. Exactly. So after a few years, the band got a regular time slot at the place where Ella kind of got her start the Savoy Ballroom which is a really cool place for Ella to be at the time because she's getting to cross paths with the absolute greats of jazz music even if some people didn't like her so much mainly Billie Holiday (laughs) as we know from her episode she kind of resented Ella which is sad because Ella really admired Billie like one night Ella was so excited to get Billie's autograph and then later when Billie was watching her band play she was like oh there's the band in that bitch Ella (laughs) (laughs) Billie come on like (laughs) 
<laughs> Billie Holiday was living a rough life. She like, was. We'll, we'll, give her a, we'll give her a pass. Oh, we give her a one. huge pass because and also women were in direct competition at that time, mm-hmm. and like just or just recently, like let's stand up for each other. Right, exactly. <laughs> and Billie Holiday had it rough. Oh, she so really I feel did. Bad for her. Um, and it's interesting because like there was a lot of rivalry, but it wasn't just a female thing. There were a lot of rivalries in the jazz scene Ooh. Um, during <laughs> this time period. <laughs> Okay. There was a big rivalry between the Benny Goodman band and the Chick Webb band. So some nights at the Savoy, they would do kind of a battle of the bands. So the Savoy had two stages that were set up so that literally the music never stopped. Because instead of having the band like break down and you have to like play a record or something, they'd be like, all right, well, you start on that one. We'll break this one down and then put on the other band. And then that way, like no one ever has to stop hearing. That sounds chaotic. Yeah. (laughs) Can you just imagine literally not one second stopping of... No, it sounds like the JF Festival. (laughs) And I hate it. I hate it for myself. So... uh, they have these two stages and some nights that they would like be both on the stage at the same time kind of play and kind of like play against each other. So they're going back and forth. Everyone's dancing like crazy. The crowd is going nuts, nuts. There's a things hit a fever pitch, whatever. And suddenly <laughs> a fever pitch. <laughs> I don't know how to use that what word. What decade is it? I don't know. That's the right word. <laughs> Starring Jimmy Fallon. <laughs> so Ella goes out on stage and she starts to sing and everyone goes still. Not because they don't like it, quite the opposite. They love it. And they suddenly all like link arms and just start swaying to the music. Yeah, she was like, We are the world. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Donate a kidney. <laughs> so everyone just thinks that she is magical. They loved her voice it's so good and they especially loved how she used it because she was really good at this thing called scatting (laughs) according to ella she was like well i just wanted to use my voice as more of an instrument she was like i always say i stole my singing style but i took it from the uh the horn section (laughs) (laughs) that scatting is nuts because it's kind of like beatboxing where like you know when someone's terrible at it and, and you, you can't mm-hmm. tell why. Yeah, you but don't then, know. <laughs> when you hear someone who's good at it, you're like, oh, yeah. shit. Yeah, Uh Did you ever see that video? No. It's Kim Cattrall scatting. Stop. Stop it. Look it up. It's upsetting. And she was a finely tuned instrument. She had a three-octave range and a wildly keen ear for music. And apparently she had perfect pitch. Like sometimes the band would tune their instruments off of her voice. Stop it. (laughs) And it made her perfect for the big band scene because the orchestra never needed to worry about what key the song started in. So even though they would use her to tune their instruments, like they could start anywhere they wanted because she was never off key. (laughs) She could also drop into a song at any moment. So literally like, like an instrument, like the band leader would be going and then he would just point to her and she would slip into the song seamlessly. Hmm. Um, and which is important. Cause like, if you've ever seen like live jazz, like there was one time Case and I were in new Orleans and we we're watching this jazz band, this like Louis Armstrong impersonator guy. He was so good. And literally a cab pulled up 
people got out of the car and they go, oh, look, our friends from Germany. They pulled out their instruments and started playing the songs. It was unreal. I was like, you just got off a plane. Just, like, what's happening? The, the, mu- the like, on-point music scene, like, the way it was in Harlem, the way, uh-huh. the way it is in New Orleans is, like, I don't, people just are learn an instrument from the time they're little and they can yeah. just jump in yeah they just I don't get it know it and so that's kind of how she is she's like i'm an instrument that can just jump in whenever so she's getting more and more famous she's making 125 dollars a week at this point Whoa, which in today's money yeah <laughs> is 2700 dollars a week in today's money Shit, that's more than i make yeah <laughs> she's named the best female vocalist by this music magazine and for reference bing crosby was named the best boy singer and she's just <laughs> performing all the time. Boys? <laughs> then in 1938, she gets her nationwide break with a song that she wrote herself based on a rhyme that she remembered from her childhood. Mm-hmm. She describes this song just kind of forming in her head and it's getting stuck. So she asked a musician and arranger to help her get it out. And thus, a tisket a tasket was born. And this song was like number one on the hit parade for like 19 weeks straight. <laughs> this song was a major hit. It was so big that it was even put in a movie. Ella herself performed this song in the Abbott and Costello movie, Ride 'em Cowboy. And the funny thing is, the song has nothing to do with the plot of the movie. This musical number where Ella's singing about her little yellow basket on a bus is just kind of thrown in. Uh, but that's how badly they wanted this song to be in the movie. Because that would be like another thing like, come to this movie. It has this song in it. <laughs> and Ella Fitzgerald. <laughs> so in just a few years, she has a number one song. She's in a movie. She's making real fucking money. But in 1939, Chick Webb passes away in Baltimore, Maryland, with the famous last words, I'm sorry, I've got to go. Of course he's in Baltimore. Billie Holiday did it. I know. She killed him. I know. <laughs> she got back at that him. Bitch. Uh, wow. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, and this is pretty devastating for the band because they were on a pretty strong hot streak during the time. So they decide that they're going to keep going with the new name, Ella and her famous orchestra. But they need a new drummer now. Oh, yeah, but they can find a new drummer. Mm. That's no problem. It's called the White Stripes. Yeah. They're on the road, playing all over the place, recording a ton of music. I mean, between 1935 and 1942, she recorded over 150 songs. I don't understand that. <laughs> it's like in Hollywood when they were making a thousand movies so for Ginger movies. Rogers. It's like, what are you even doing? What are you doing? Um, But as she's getting into the 40s, she starts exploring the idea of a solo career. She starts performing outside of the band. She starts playing with the Benny Goodman band, which I guess they settled their beef. Um, And she creates a separate group called Ella Fitzgerald and her Savoy 8. Because, sorry, she's realizing that even though the band started out as the most important part of the performance, that was shifting. She was the star now. It wasn't like, come see this orchestra and Ella Fitzgerald. It was come see Ella Fitzgerald, period. She Adam levine them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so she is the star now. And she realized that she didn't have to be with this specific group of people to make an impact. You know, people are saying, paying to see her. 
So she makes the decision to leave the band, strike out on her own. Uh, you know, and the band can still go around and play. You know, I don't want to make it seem like she, like, abandoned her brothers. Like, she didn't at all. You know, she'll still come back around and perform with them. You know, the jazz scene is kind of like that, it seems to me. It's very fluid. People play with each other all the time. So it's like and, a like, Fergie, Black Eyed Peas situation. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, so she leaves the band, strikes out on her own, but then... A few external problems start to affect her career. There's a gas crisis, so she has a hard time physically touring and getting to the places. Uh, the music union or whoever it was uh, goes on strike, so there's no new recordings happening. Um, of course, the U.S. is in the middle of World War II. It is bananas. And so she's like, okay, like, what do I do? You know? And so she starts doing like USO tours. Uh, but there was a lot of racial discrimination going on and like a lot of like the black troops like weren't allowed to go to the USO shows, shows which is like so fucked up. Yeah. Um, but as always, she's very good at adapting. So again, she starts doing the USO stuff. She starts guesting for all the famous big bands so that she can still be on her own and maintaining her own career, um, but also have a presence on the bigger stages. So kind of like what she was doing with Benny Goodman. She's now doing with all the big bands. So it's like tonight featuring Ella Fitzgerald. Exactly. Got it. So this seems to be working out really well for her. And she kind of gets to do it on her own terms a little bit more. But of course, not quite because she's way overworking herself as she will her entire life. <laughs> so she's 30 years old. She's in her prime. She's super famous. And the next step for a jazz musician of her caliber would be to have her own radio program, something like the Ella Fitzgerald Hour or whatever. You know, this is a common thing back in the day. But radio producers just couldn't seem to cross that color line quite yet. They couldn't have a black woman with her own radio show, which angered a lot of people. There was a reviewer who was like, neon arrows are pointing at Ella Fitzgerald and she is being ignored and it's fucked up. Like, people are calling out radio stations in the press, like, you're not doing this because she's a black woman, and this is really messed up. Like, <laughs> Good for them. Yeah, like, this one guy was, like, something about, like, like they're being bullied by their own Jim Crow laws, and I just want to smack them in the face. <laughs> um, being bullied by their own laws. They are profiting wildly from right these stupid awful racist laws. But exactly. anyways. Um, so it's kind of frustrating for her, because she's, like, in the year that I make my Carnegie Hall debut and my songs are being played on the radio time, I still can't host my own show. I can't take the next step in my own career. It's just frustrating. So Ella may have been big on the stage, not quite on the radio, mm -hmm. uh, but her personal life was very hush-hush. Her first marriage in 1941 was to a guy named Benny Carnegie. He was a convicted drug dealer and local dock worker. And Ella likes to tell the story that he was kind of a backstage, backdoor, backdoor Johnny, whatever. Like, he would, like, always be trying to see her after the shows. And, like, someone made a bet that she wouldn't marry him. And she was like, all right, well, I'm going to marry him. Uh, but other people are like, maybe he was backstage. But I think it's just a lapse in judgment. And she's passing it off as a bet, you mm -hmm. know. Um, and... Because I don't think anyone in that band would have made that bet with her because the guys that were playing with her were very protective of Ella and they hated this guy. <laughs> They're like, he's bad news. He's awful. Don't do this. 
And thankfully, Ellis soon came to agree with him, and the marriage was annulled in 1942. Okay, I just think maybe like he gave her attention because she had money, and, and she for was, so and long. she was young. Yeah, like, and for so long though, people were like, "Oh, she's homely." Yeah, mm-hmm. so it's like, "Oh, he's giving me attention." Exactly. I don't know, that's sad. It is sad. Um, but apparently, when the judge granted the annulment, he turned to the guy and he goes, "You stop preying on young girls, <laughs> and you keep singing a tisket a tasket." <laughs> <laughs> I want that judge on the Supreme Court. Where is he? (laughs) So her second marriage was in December 1947 to the famous bass player Ray Brown, whom she had met while on tour with Dizzy Gillespie. Um, And apparently they were really happy together. That's cute. They just really loved each other and they fit. They even adopted a baby together, uh, a little boy who they named Ray Brown Jr., who was the child of her half-sister, Frances, mm-hmm. uh, which we know happened a lot back in those days. Um, but I know that her heart was in the right place with adopting this baby, um, but they didn't have time for a baby. I mean, they were both on the road all the time with separate bands. They weren't even together all the time. So Aunt Virginia, who had saved Ella in her youth, took in baby Ray. Oh, Aunt Virginia, God bless She's you. She's so great. <laughs> uh, and it sucked for Ella because she really loved this baby, Ray Jr., but her career was just so insanely demanding. And it also eventually took its toll on her marriage. In 1953, her and Ray realized that it just wasn't working with their careers. They just literally couldn't be physically together enough so they split up but they remained close and they still performed together but it just it sucks that her relationships with men are so strained because like someone said i don't know if ella ever really felt loved by anyone you know and it just makes me sad well i mean it was uncommon as it was for a woman to have her own career Uh but she had her own career and was touring and Uh was most likely going to meet men who were touring yeah Mm -hmm. so what was she gonna do just she would have had to stop working and travel with them and that's clearly not what she wanted no and you know her relationship with the stress the press is also strained i mean people love her music but are constantly commenting on how unattractive she is you know, I, I said earlier, Ebony Magazine would call her matronly and talk about how she doesn't wear enough makeup. And Ella would write back to her and be like, why does it matter? I'm a good singer. Focus on that. Like, I am a black woman who is making a lot of money in America and being successful. Why isn't that enough? Like, it's so frustrating. And it sucks because I think she would kind of put on like, no, no, like, it's about the music. It's not about that. But it really cut her deep, you know? She was a really self-conscious person. I mean, singer Charles Linton recalled that if they were hanging out and people were staring at her because she's fucking Ella Fitzgerald and she's a mega star, she would get really self-conscious and she was like, she would say, no, they're just staring at me because I'm fat. Oh, poor thing. And she was really self-conscious and she was really shy. Like, even her bandmates were like, yeah, Ella was not a partier. Like, she would maybe have some champagne with us, you know, before the show, but she wasn't a huge drinker. She would come, she would perform, and that was it. When she was done, she would go home. Like, she was not into any of the drugs or the alcohol or the crazy scene. Like, she was a really insular person. Uh, And she also rarely gave interviews. Um, When asked about why she was so private and why she didn't talk a whole lot, she said, I just don't want to say the wrong thing. 
I just, which I always do. You know, I think I just do better when I sing, (laughs) which I think is such a relatable feeling, especially now. Like I think a lot of people in the past few years have just gone silent because it's just easier to not get yelled at all the time online. (laughs) Um, So she's living in pretty turbulent times. Um, Ella has been traveling around the U.S. for quite some time now, and she has had her fair share of racist treatment. Certain hotels she couldn't stay in, restaurants she couldn't eat in, the bullshit we hear from every black artist during this time period. So around 1949, she meets a man named Norman Krantz. So he is a white producer, like manager kind of person, who is putting together this tour called Jazz at the Philharmonic. And this tour is specifically designed to bring black acts in to play in segregated spaces. And every time he goes to one of these segregated theaters, he's like, yeah, I'll have all these big bands for you. I'll have Ella Fitzgerald play, but you have to desegregate the audience. And that was his rule for this whole tour. He's like, yeah, you can have a sold out show with all these legends and like, you know, bring in a ton of money, but you're going to do exactly what I tell you to do. Right. <laughs> Thank God. Somebody. I know. And he stood up for Ella. He goes, and if Ella Fitzgerald is going to be here, she will be given equal pay and accommodations regardless of her sex and race. And like, uh, it was, um, Josephine Baker. Yes. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Like Josephine Baker. He was like, if we get out there and we see that it's all white people, he goes, we will leave. And if I get there and discover that you paid, you know, Judy Garland more than Ella Fitzgerald, he goes, we will leave because that's not what this is. Like, and didn't, that's um, fucked up. Marilyn Monroe had Ella Fitzgerald. You're going to tell that yeah. story. Okay. So I will tell I'll that wait. story. Oh, wait, oh, wait, oh, wait. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> sometimes this went well. Other times they were chased out of the theater by an angry mob. <laughs> it was a real toss up. Um, but it was a stand that they were choosing to take against this fucked up system i mean she was subject to all sorts of bullshit i mean one time she was arrested with her bandmates for playing dice in their own dressing room it's a very peaceful way to protest yeah it is um because it's like you're paying to hear us but you won't even sit next to someone who looks like me right that's ridiculous um and it's so funny because she gets arrested for playing dice in her own dressing room and she said that yeah they picked me up i'm at the station and they had the nerve to ask me for my autograph while they had me in custody stop then in 1954 her crew had first class tickets on a pan am flight from honolulu to sydney because she was on a worldwide tour but once the flight crew saw them sitting in first class they kicked them off the flight they are being forced off the plane. They won't even let them get their bags. So they are without their luggage. The plane goes off and it takes them three days to sort this out and get another flight out of Honolulu to Sydney. It's fucked up. I don't understand. Like if you paid for the ticket. Right. Yeah. And the other fucked up thing is she goes, I'm going to Sydney to perform. So she missed her two opening performances in Sydney. She should be able to sue the airlines. Oh, she did. Oh, good. (laughs) You know, because she had to perform two free makeup concert for the ticket holders. And Ella was like, we are not going to stand for this. So she sued Pan Am Airlines for racial discrimination. 
and she won. She didn't say about much about it afterwards, but she simply said she got a nice settlement. <laughs> <laughs> and when someone asked, would you sue again? She goes, oh, yeah. <laughs> she goes, if someone's doing something wrong, yes, I will sue them. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Then, of course, in 1955, there was the famous instance of Marilyn Monroe standing up for Ella and lobbying for her to play the Macombo nightclub in Hollywood. So the story goes, uh, Marilyn was really upset because she heard that the club wouldn't book Ella. And so she took it into her own hands and said, look, I will sit outside and like sign autographs, whatever you want to do to get you to let her into this club to perform because she's that talented. And so they let her play uh, for a whole week. And this, of course, drew a huge crowd, including some famous people such as Frank Sinatra and Judy Garland. And Marilyn was just a constant support to Ella's career, always praising her music and always demanding that Ella was spoken of in a very respectful manner. And always like, no, she's going to sit up front at my table. Yeah, exactly. With, with the other people yeah. that are like just regular performers. Yeah. Like we're all performers. They just had this like wonderful rapport and friendship and just a respect for one another, which yeah. I really loved. And Ella said later, she goes, I owe Marilyn a real debt because she was standing up for me and a lot of people wouldn't. Yeah, I think a lot of people only see that one side of Marilyn Monroe, the mm -hmm. like woman found in her bed with pills and like the sex symbol and we forget she was well, so talented i would i'm gonna go on and say that's a norma jean move yeah to bring yes, ella up that's norma jean and like you know that's a girl who also grew up in a, a shitty household and was pretty much you know pushed into marriage mm -hmm. as a baby child and like worked in a freaking parachute factory like, right exactly she's not a star like she is a starlet but she wasn't always mm -hmm. um and she was also being abused you know by mgm and whoever else so like she understands the industry isn't kind yeah and she was just i i love their relationship anytime i see that picture of them <sighs> sitting together at that table like in the front row it's I'm so like, perfect oh. and there's a perfect callback yeah First episode of season one, I first know. episode of season 13. Talking about besties. So, <laughs> so lots of things are happening. Her career is going really well, but she wants to do more. She feels like she's kind of stuck doing what she calls bebop music. Yeah. You know, and she's like, I kind of feel like some of the songs I'm doing are like more commercial, you know, and right. like she does like a song about bubble gum and she was like, I didn't want to do that song, but you know, a company paid me to. Um, so Norman Gantz, the guy from the Philharmonic tour becomes her manager because she's like, you get what's going on. Like, you're going to stand up for me. I fucking love this. So he's like, all right, well, like I'm going to form my own record company to make the system work better for people like you. Mm. So in 1956, he creates Verve records. And one of the first things they did, which was absolutely genius was they put Ella Fitzgerald, and Louis Armstrong together. And they recorded the album Ella and Louis, which is an iconic collection of duets sung by them. It was so popular that they ended up recording two more of these albums. And they're wonderful. Aww. They're so good. I love when one of their songs comes on because, like, they do all these classics, but in their own way, mm -hmm. you know? And it was great because apparently Ella used to, like, impersonate... <laughs> Louie and he thought that was so funny <laughs> um I also will mention you know I'm not going to get into like a lot of her specific songs but her cover of Mac the Knife is so good it really is and she calls out the other people that have done it before which I love um so anyways 
Verve Records and Norman Gantz really help expand her career, and she's soon going on even more European tours, which is amazing for her career, but unfortunately Europe does not agree with her personal life. She ends up having this very turbulent relationship with a Norwegian man named Thor Larsen. She was swept off her feet, even bought an apartment in Oslo for them, but the affair was quickly abandoned when Larson was sentenced to five months hard labor in Sweden for stealing money from a young woman who he had previously been engaged to. <laughs> okay. I, she has a bad pick of men. I know. I feel like the only good one was the bassist and like her, her career, like their careers just didn't line yeah, up. It Ray. sucks. Ray was Ray. fine, but Thor. Yeah. Thor. Thor, God of Norway. Thor and Benny. <laughs> I do not agree I with. Can't handle that. <laughs> So, thankfully, she got out of that one pretty clean. Some people speculate that they did get married, but we don't know for sure. (laughs) Um, And that's the last tidbit of information we ever get about, like, her personal dating life. That's it. Which is wild. (laughs) All done. All done. She is a very private person. That's all we know. But because she's getting really high-profile gigs now, she ends up pairing with... Yet another music legend, Frank Sinatra. They became really good friends. And he was kind of like her male Marilyn Monroe, you know? Talent appreciates talent. Yeah. He was always like, oh, Ella, come do this thing with me. Come play on my show. Come do this song with me. Like, let's sing together. Like, always. And for years, there were rumors about them recording an album together, but unfortunately, it just never came to fruition. But they both really wanted to that because sucks. they were just really good friends. Like, it was really sweet. When she's 43, she performs at JFK's inaugural ball, which is very cool. Uh, and she's really cementing herself as a classic. Even the Rolling Stones would sneak into her recording sessions to see her perform because she was legendary. That's amazing. Even at this point. In 1974 and 75, she even got Frank Sinatra to come out of retirement and perform a few shows at Caesar's Palace and on Broadway. <laughs> Apparently, their two Broadway shows together grossed a million dollars. So. Later on, she does a bunch of commercials for things like Memorax tapes and Popeye's chicken. It's like the famous commercial where like she, they like, like record her and then play a recording of her and it breaks the glass, like (laughs) that kind of thing. Um, And she's still performing whenever she can, which is incredible for a woman her age and whose voice has been used as a legitimate instrument for decades. And I am so happy to say that she sounded great until the very end. Because she was fucking going home instead of partying. Yeah, all yeah that's so true. That's exactly it. She like, didn't drug out her voice. No. I mean, it's so interesting, too, that we finished last season on Whitney Houston and started this season on Ella. Yeah. Because they were both so talented and just ended up going different ways. And I just wish that. Whitney had been able to preserve her voice, you know, and her career the way that Ella had. Right. Or Mariah Carey or like anybody whose voice has just been tortured by years of alcohol and drugs. Yeah. It sucks. So she's working constantly, still singing at perfectly. (laughs) She switches labels a few more times. She's even on like Frank Sinatra's personal label at some point. Like it's weird. Um, She's recording nonstop. But soon it starts to catch up with her. 
Ella had been suffering from diabetes and heart disease for a number of years, and it started to take a toll on her professional life. She had problems with her eyes. She had to have surgery on them. She was constantly in and out of the hospital for respiratory issues and exhaustion. In 1986, she underwent a quintuple bypass surgery <gasps> and only waited nine months before getting on the road again and performing. I hate I've that. never heard of quintuple bypass. I don't even know how that's a thing. But then in 1993, due to complications with diabetes, she had to have both of her legs amputated below the knee. What? I know. Did you know that? I had no idea. Yeah. Both of her legs amputated below the knee. Huh. Yeah. And she was 75 at this time when she has this amputation done. And this is when she finally stopped performing. (laughs) And she started to spend more time with her family. She obviously wasn't around for most of her son, Ray Jr.'s life. Uh, In fact, she was like, yeah, I felt really bad. I met his wife uh, while she was walking down the aisle. Like, I didn't know. I'd never met her before. They were getting married. (laughs) But once she was forced to slow down, they reconnected, and she got to spend a lot of time with his daughter, her granddaughter, uh, Alice. She once said, I just want to smell the air, listen to the birds, and hear Alice laugh. Which is so sweet. That is sweet. And also, like, such a sign of, like, you would expect someone who, who, like, went through that to be, like, mad and bitter. And, like, finally, like, Ella, like, say something mad. Say say something bad. Like, my goodness. Be upset. Be upset. And she was like, no, I'm just grateful that I can spend time with my granddaughter now. (laughs) Three years later, on June 15th, 1996, Ella passed away from a stroke at the age of 79. During her time, she recorded hundreds of songs, won 14 Grammys, sold 40 million records, and truly changed music forever. In 1986, she received an honorary doctorate of music from Yale University, and in 1990, she received an honorary doctorate of music from Harvard University, and four more honorary doctorates from other Ivy League schools, which is pretty good for a junior high dropout. And in 1989, she was awarded a Presidential Medal of Freedom. In 2019, her original catalog of music was unfortunately destroyed in a fire at Universal Studios, so this means her estate can't remaster any any of her music or re-release it, which is really sad. But it's okay, because her legacy goes way beyond music. Throughout her life, Ella supported various charities, especially ones that supported orphaned children. In 1993, she founded the Ella Fitzgerald Charitable um, Foundation, which aimed to provide assistance for at-risk youth and develop art programs for them. And it is still in existence today, funded by her estate along... um, you know, and with, with all the royalties that are still made off of her music. So it's a foundation that will never run out of money because all of the things that all the money she still makes just goes towards this foundation, which right. is so great. Um, so it supports youth programs, the American Heart Association, Guide Dogs of America, this program that gives books to children called A Book for Me as well, and uh, just many other organizations. And I mean, what more can be said about Ella? She lived an incredible life, overcame many obstacles, and not only remained an amazing singer, but a genuinely nice, good person. She truly deserves her titles of the Queen of Jazz and the First Lady of Song. 
And that is the story of Ella Fitzgerald. <laughs> That's so great. I love that her story is so straightforward. Yeah. She just, like, is not a fuck-up. No. <laughs> like, and it's, it's nice. I mean, sometimes it's just like, come on, give me a little bit of spice. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> At the same time, it's really nice to just be like, she lived this life. It wasn't it wasn't easy by any oh. means to be a black woman in America while she was living her life, but she, you know, kind of I feel like she took just the reins it. and she did it with such class. Oh. You know, I feel like Ella Fitzgerald is such a classy person, right? And I just feel like she just was wonderful, just yeah. all the way through. And I'm I was so happy because I was like, oh, what are we gonna get into? Like, you know, with like her personal life and whatever. And I was like. Wow, she was just really a good person who was treated like shit by a lot of people, but like, you know, was just chill about it. Yeah, she was just like, I'm gonna do what I do. I'm gonna sue Pan Am. Uh, I am gonna stand up against racial discrimination, but like, I'm just still gonna retain like my integrity, integrity, and I don't know. It's just I think she's wonderful. Yeah, (laughs) she's super cool. All right, I love that. Let's get another drink, please. Um, so the storm is a coming through. Yeah. So if you guys hear thunder or rain, just be aware that, uh, there, Oh, there's a deer. Oh, wow. Fun. That nature. <laughs> oh my gosh. Whole family of deers. Yeah. They're just like a little, Oh my gosh. Little crew. Three. Would that be a flock? Are they a, a flock? Fern. A fern no. of deers. That's a lie. That sounds nice though. It should be a fern of deers. Yeah. Let's call it that. Okay. Um, so we're back. Second half of the app. Another banger. Yes. Another pretty straightforward, like <laughs> interesting story. Um, I guess you want to know what you're drinking. Yes, I do. It looks like a Cosmo. It does look like a Cosmo. And there's a, okay. So there's a reason for that. <laughs> so the drink is called the Iron Lady mm-hmm. and she is Margaret Thatcher is so much a woman and so much, like, adverse to the idea that she was ever a woman. <laughs> like, in any, any way. So I just wanted it to look very Cosmo-y, but also not be. Mm-hmm. So it's two parts gin, half a part grenadine, half a part lime juice, egg whites, and then you float the limes on top. I love it. Cheers. Cheers. Mm. Mm. I really like that. It's, it's like, like a fancy Cosmo. It is. It has like a little more body than a regular Cosmo, I think, because yeah. of the egg white. Um, and gin instead of vodka. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's just like a little bit more complex of a flavor. I really like that, actually. Yeah. And it's like sweet and like, but just a little bit of mm-hmm. like a pucker. It's good. I like it a lot. Mm. Okay. So tell me what you know about Margaret Thatcher. Okay, so I know that she is called the Iron Lady. I think she was the Prime Minister of England mm-hmm. or Great Britain. Yeah, is that Great the same Britain. thing? Yeah, okay. United Kingdom. United Kingdom. I feel like she's hated by a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, I is she kind of like our version of a Republican? Yes, she's very conservative. Yeah, conservative. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I think she's conservative. Um, people make jokes about her a lot, and I think that she has done some things that people are upset about yes 
<laughs> but that's all I really know. I just, and it, it makes me kind of sad that I only know her as like the butt of a joke. Right. Because like, obviously she's a woman that held an immense amount of power. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious to see how she got there. Yeah. I think <laughs> I just want to start by saying the thing that I can most describe her as not in political opinions in any way, but she is so close to a Hillary Clinton <sighs> that it's unbelievable. Like you could ask, 10 people in America, their opinions on Hillary Clinton, and they would range the gamut from right. hate to love to somewhere in between. Mm-hmm. The same thing is true of Margaret Thatcher. She was so early on the scene as a woman, as a powerful woman, that um, she just garnered a lot of criticism mm-hmm. that would not have been directed toward her if she was a man. Yeah. So, um, although I don't agree with a lot of her political opinions, mm-hmm. she's just very similar to a Hillary Clinton. That's a really good comparison. And yeah. it's inter- it's an interesting comparison because they're on the opposite sides of the political spectrum. <laughs> exactly. And I think it, that happened to us inadvertently mm-hmm. when we posted on Twitter one day about Ava Perone. Oh, yeah. I had no idea. She's very controversial in Argentina. I did not realize that there are people who hate her and love her the same way if I was to post about Hillary and some conservative, um, you know, Donald Trumper got online and started talking shit about her. Mm -hmm. Like, I I wouldn't have known if I wasn't from Argentina. So I didn't get it. Yeah. Okay. So my sources were weird because, like... Everything is very much this is what she voted for and this is what she voted against while she was in parliament. And I just wanted to be like, somebody spill the tea. Like, mm-hmm. I need the dirt, but I didn't have enough time. She wrote two memoirs, but oh my God. I could like breeze through them, but I just didn't have enough time to like get the real like essence of her. So there's so much more. Can you imagine how crazy that would feel like on your morning run listening to a book on Margaret, like a memoir of Margaret Thatcher on 1.5 speed? I would love it. I would <laughs> fucking love it. Margaret Thatcher. One is called like the Downing Year, you know, because she's on yeah. 10 Downing Street. The Downing Years. And then something is like the, I don't know. I'll, I wrote it down. We'll, I'll say them later. Okay. Okay. So Margaret Roberts was born on October 13th in 1925. So not less wow. than 10 years after Ella. Yeah, because she was 1917. So they are very close. Very My close. goodness. Yes. So Margaret is born. Also, that's my mom's name, so I automatically love it. Margaret is born between World War I and World War II, and her parents were Alfred and Beatrice Roberts. When she was a child, she grew up in this kind of suburban area between London and Edinburgh. So her dad owned a grocery store slash tobacco shop, and she was born in the apartment above that. So she okay. didn't come from a lot of money, which is weird for parliamental people Uh in that time her dad was also kind of like the local preacher and he brought his daughter up in a very strictly methodist way but margaret is a very skeptical about religion from a very very young age she told her friend in fact at one point that she couldn't believe in angels because they would need a six foot long breastbone to support their wings She's like, that doesn't make sense for a human to fly. Wow. I uh, have been reading books about fairies who fly for a Never few months about now. It. Never thought about that. Maybe, that, maybe angels Never have hollow bones Never like birds. Bone you don't know. Where's your imagination, yeah. Mags? <laughs> <laughs> so 
All throughout her childhood, she had good grades, especially in science, and was involved in her school community. She played the piano. She played field hockey. She went to poetry recitals. She was a swimmer. She was head girl. Mm. What a British thing to be. Percy's head boy. (laughs) I know. (laughs) I know. They're very similar (laughs) in their actions. In 1939, shortly after the Second World War, her family decided to give sanctuary to a teenage Jewish girl who had escaped from Nazi Germany. So they hear about this girl and her family, you know, she and her sister and her family kind of go around town. They get money to help pay this girl's passage over to England from, I guess she escaped from Germany to France and is trying to get to England. Um, But this girl, when she's there, generates some serious gossip in prim and proper you know town where she grew Uh up she wore lipstick she smoked cigarettes Uh she was flirting with all the boys in town like this cute german girl you know um but she gave margaret a firsthand account of nazism which impacted her beliefs against authoritarian government for the remainder of her life wow like margaret lived with a jewish girl who was being persecuted against so, you know what's interesting about the comparison to Hillary Clinton is that I feel like Hillary Clinton grew up as, like, a very staunch Republican. And from what Margaret's upbringing is Her dad uh, is in the liberal to, party. It's like, uh-huh. you would think that she would grow up liberal because she's, like, weary about religion, like, learn the horrors of Nazi Germany from an early age. Like, uh-huh. I just, it's so funny how they both swip-swapped, too. Uh-huh. It's crazy. (laughs) That's wild. So her dad running for the liberal party became (laughs) the mayor of their little town. So she's learning a lot about politics, which it seems weird to like own a grocery store and be a preacher and be in politics. But right. It's like calm down in this tiny town. It's so much. But Katie and my dad are both elders in the church Mm -hmm. and it literally is politics. You deal with the budget. You're doing Robert's rule of orders. You're like, Mm -hmm. there's so much decision making. It's it's bananas. And some people don't like the decisions that you make. Right. You know, especially in the church and stuff when people are stuck in their ways yeah exactly like i remember being like really shocked that there was like a woman who left the church because she like hated my dad yeah it's like oh that stuff happens (laughs) a lot in churches so like i think she's like getting kind of groomed for politics at a pretty young age Mm -hmm. kind of like a you can't please everyone right and you like especially in a small town where everybody knows everybody and you just had the like little flirty jewish girl living at your house right yeah (laughs) Which I think is a good lesson to learn for everybody. Like, yeah. that you can't please everyone. And Margaret never Frankly. did. <laughs> <laughs> she pleased who she pleased and didn't give a shit about yeah. the rest, <laughs> which I admire in her so deeply. In her sixth year of schooling, she was accepted at, like, the woman's branch of Oxford College. So, with a scholarship. Wow. Su- in science. Oh my God. During her time at Oxford, she was kind of noted, like people said she was very serious in her attitude and somebody said isolated. And I don't think that fits her. I think at the time she was quiet unless she was spoken to because her first boy, and that changes, (laughs) her first boyfriend, Tony Bray, recalled, quote, 
She was very thoughtful and a very good conversationalist. That's probably what interested me. She was good at general subjects. So like a politician, Uh she can talk about anything Mm -hmm. to anyone. She's very good at that. And I cannot. No. My goodness. I'm out of my comfort zone. I clam up. And then I start like (laughs) thinking in my head, like, what should I talk about? And then the silence gets too long. And I'm like, if I change topics, then they know I've been thinking about what to talk about. It's crazy. Yep. I I usually just end up like yelling. Like, (laughs) 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 exactly. That's why I'm so loud at parties. You know what? At least we do it together. Yep. So she's at Oxford from 1943 to 1947 and graduates with a degree in chemistry specializing in x-rays. Did you, that's crazy. I had no Who idea. Who is this woman? I had no idea. <laughs> she also received a master's from Oxford just a few years later. But she wasn't only studying chemistry because she only wanted to be a chemist for like a couple of years. She's already thinking about being a politician. And later in life, she would say that she was more proud of being the first prime minister with a science degree than being the first female prime minister. Really? Yeah. That's so interesting. It was a bigger deal to her to like bring science to the table. Yeah. Which cool. <laughs> um, so her interest in politics is growing, but it was seen as very unusual for women at that point. So, but she was like becoming the heads of certain boards at right. Oxford. They're like electing her into these like student government things in her master's degree. But everybody's like, that's odd, but she's good at it. So let's just let her do it. Right. <laughs> After graduating, she moves to Essex, not Maryland, <laughs> to work as a research chemist for a plastic engineering company. And she applied for jobs at the Imperial Chemical Industries, but was denied because, quote, she was too headstrong, obstinate, and dangerously self-opinionated. Uh, uh, so if she was a man, they would have said he has good leadership skills. <laughs> yep. That's, that's exactly it. Headstrong, obstinate. Um, so I do want to throw in here that at some point she was working with some food scientists and developed a soft serve ice cream machine. Now. She did not invent soft serve ice cream. That's like something that's very clear on all the websites. But she was part of the team that figured out how to inject air into soft serve ice cream to make it cheaper and popularized it. Oh, my God. Margaret Thatcher, Corbros. Here we are. (laughs) Dickies. (laughs) I can't believe that. That's wild. Wow, so we wouldn't have the soft serve stands if it wasn't yeah, for, and like they like were being put in team. like food trucks too, yeah. like to drive around England, and that like they couldn't wild. do that yet. So her team kind of did that. That's the last cool thing she did. Just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Just a joke. And the story ends there. <laughs> Just the two of us. <laughs> Time to move on. <laughs> okay. So she starts attending political party conferences as kind of a representative for all her little groups at Oxford, and she becomes involved in a grassroots political campaign. Um, They're so impressed with her. They're like, you be the candidate for parliament for this political campaign, even though she's like not on the approved list of candidates. But they select her anyway. She's 24 years old, and they're like, we want you to run for parliament like for us. This Mm -hmm. is like 1950. 
during all this time and campaigning, she's at dinner. She's now a candidate. She meets this cute, not cute, divorcee, <laughs> this uncute divorcee named Dennis Thatcher. He was a wealthy, successful businessman. And she says after their first meeting, he was not a very attractive creature. Very reserved, but quite nice. He was nice, and okay. she married him. Oh, there we go. And that's her only marriage. Are they? And I know we're probably going to get to this, but are they still married? Or um, they're they both divorced? dead, but oh, they never okay. got divorced. They never got divorced. Mm-mm. Okay, no, he died first because he was older and divorced, and then married her. Okay, so she was his second marriage, um, and he died several years before she did. Okay, but they stayed together their whole lives, and neither of them ever remarried after well, that. So, all right, Dennis Thatcher, Dennis Thatcher for the win, pinch hitter. Okay. <laughs> So she is running as the conservative candidate for the labor seat. I do want to note here, I literally don't understand the parliament at all. Oh, I don't And I'm not going to pretend to. Uh, it terrifies me the way they sit opposite each other and mm-hmm. just yell. And they're like, boo, boo. <laughs> like while someone's talking. You know what I'm talking about? Yes. It's terrifying to me. It's also reminding me of that old woman in the fucking Princess, Princess Bride. Bride. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> and you know who played her in our high school production of that? Anna Clark. Shout out to my old friend. Who's a lawyer. Who's a lawyer. Good for her. Anna Clark. I love you. The lawyer. Just like <laughs> Margaret Thatcher. Just like. But we'll get there. What? She's <laughs> a lawyer? My God. This woman's insane. How does this woman have the time? She doesn't. And all the space in her closet for those wigs. <laughs> That's the worst. Cute. Can we just say. The barrister situation. I hate it. Yeah. Get yeah rid of those wigs oh yeah. oh yeah i listened to a whole podcast about it and i still don't understand it and apparently i did learn though the grosser your wig gets the better because that means you're a more experienced judge oh we because you're not sup- you're not supposed to wash them oh it's like michael jordan's north carolina shorts exactly got it they're moldy i hate it ew I don't want my cocktail anymore. <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> as as, I just always picture um, the little toad. Um, <gasps> yes. Oh, my gosh. And it, from oh, Wind in yes. the Willows. Yes, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> He's got a little watch. He's got a little pocket watch. Oh, him. my gosh. He's his own. Lo- He's a psychopath. He is. But he has his wig, and it's maggot-free, as far as I could tell. Well, that's good. Okay. So um, she moves closer to where she needs to be for all this campaigning. She marries Dennis. They start attending the Church of England. Good political move, even though she's not really religious. (laughs) She is great at speaking, which is why the party selects her. She's well prepared at answering questions and fearless in her opinionated answers. She does not care if people disagree with her. She will just say what she's thinking. And a man who's running against her said, quote, once she opened her mouth, the rest of us began to look rather second rate. (laughs) (laughs) She attracted media attention as the youngest female candidate. She did lose her two initial like election spots. She tries to run twice and loses but she split the party meaning at least half of the party was willing to give her a chance yeah Mm -hmm. so during her campaigning she is supported by her husband his full-time busy businessman and um dennis also funds her to study for the bar she passes the bar qualifies as a barrister that specialized in taxation so she's like i want to be fully qualified i thought they're the worst kind of lawyer 
A money lawyer? Yeah. A tax lawyer? Yeah, that's the worst. No thanks. And for how much she changes taxes in England, I would say, and that people hate her for it, I would say she needed the degree to back up her decision making. Okay. Girl is wild. Okay. (laughs) I also want to be clear. She's birthing children during all, all of this. How many kids does she have? She has twin boys and a girl. Oh, my God. She's having kids. Kind of like sitting in the sidelines just for a little bit, just till they're like old enough, mm-hmm. you know. But in 1959, she finally gets elected as a member to parliament. Mm. And her maiden speech, so like her first speech in parliament, is about a bill requiring local authorities to hold their council meetings in public. And it gets passed into law. Just like, we got to stop being private around here. That's ridiculous. But like her growing up poor, she really has a sense for class structure in England. And she's tired of it. She does a lot of changing in that area. Yeah. But then at the same time, she's also voting for the restoration of birching as corporal punishment. What is birching? It's taking a birch branch and whipping someone's naked bottom. <gasps> what? What is? Oh, what? Why do we? Why are we whipping people? Why is people? she pro that? I don't know. I'm so confused about all of her political opinions because one second I'm like, yes, yes, girl. And the next second I'm like, that's the worst. Why are we going to whip a naked bottom? (laughs) Any bottom, but specifically a naked one that's so fucking weird. (laughs) I mean, maybe she has a fetish. I I don't know. Let's get some Fifty Shades of Grey on the books. (laughs) They had a safe word. (laughs) It's birch. (laughs) They weren't using it. Okay. (laughs) So even this is still her early 20s. I'm like, what? Yeah. (laughs) And people are starting to mention her as somebody who would make a great future prime minister. But she was really pessimistic. She said, quote, when people asked her about it, there will not be a woman prime minister in my lifetime. The male population is too prejudiced. Wow. She was straight up, told everybody what she thought. And then... When people asked if she would vote for a female prime minister, she said, depends on the woman. Well, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Like, yeah, I'm not just going to vote for a random woman. You know woman. what? I actually think that that is a perfect uh, response mm-hmm. because one of the points of this whole fucking show is that, like, some women are bad women. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, and some are great. You know? Like, if Eileen Warnos ran for president, I would not vote for her right. just because she's a woman. Like... If Elizabeth Bathory (laughs) ran for president, I would be like, get it. (laughs) Psych, I would not. If Margaret Thatcher ran, I'm just. If Margaret Thatcher (laughs) ran, I would be like, absolutely not. But I don't think you get to vote. I think the way parliament works is you vote them into parliament and then parliament votes for a prime minister. Oh. I think that's the difference between a prime minister and a president. You're right. That's why there's like that no confidence vote. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a different setup. Right. So it's like once you're in, you are like one of the candidates to be pope or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Just like the pope vote with the smoke. Mm -hmm. Just like that. Mm -hmm. That's totally staged. I should not be here. Let's be clear. (laughs) Yeah. Everybody knows who the next pope is going to be because God says it. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Did you say that Britney Spears got into a huge fight with the Catholic Church this week? I did. (laughs) I was proud of her. I love it. They were like, you, she was like, 
I, I asked to be married in this church and they refused. And they're yeah. like, you never asked us. Like, yeah. what are you talking about? And I love that they're <laughs> angry about that. When that other celebrity wore <laughs> that bathing suit this week, it was a bikini top triangle that said father, son, and like, holy, like, holy spirit. I and, did not see that. So you can like cross yourself. I was like, why aren't they more mad about that? Yeah. Like, let Britney have her lie. <laughs> Letter. Letter B. Letter. Sorry, that's for Patreon. Let's save all okay, that. Okay, you're right, you're right, you're right. Okay. <laughs> so, at first, she's on the back bench, which I assume is like the nosebleed bleachers in Parliament. And by 1961, she's promoted to front bench. <gasps> she, I know. Parliamentary secretary to the Ministry for Pensions is what it is. I don't know. Okay. She's the youngest woman in history to receive such a post and the first in her election class. So the class of that got elected in 1959 to Mm -hmm. be promoted. So her, all these boys, she's the first one up on the front bench. That's exciting. Really good. So then conservatives lose the hold in parliament. So now she's in the minority party. Um, But she's still the spokesperson for housing and land. And then get this, get this. This is what they call the minority party, the shadow cabinet. <gasps> That's so fucking cool. So spooky. Um, I just like that. I, I like, like it. it. <laughs> She's a, sorry, I can't have tea today. I have a meeting with the shadow, <gasps> shadow cabinet. I like it. It's really good. It's better than majority whip and minority whip. That's so fucking dumb. Yeah, it's like, what are you, birchers? <laughs> <laughs> are you going to birch me? <laughs> if I don't know. Vote for your thing. Yellow. Um, <laughs> if you're part of the shadow cabinet, shout us out. <laughs> Nobody on the shadow cabinet. Private messages. <laughs> Private messages. Sorry, dir- sorry direct DM. Direct D- message. DM me if you're part sorry. of the shadow cabinet. I don't know one person on the shadow cabinet. Or I don't even know who the majority party is right now. If you now. want to be even more low-key, send me a message on MySpace. <laughs> I deleted mine. I think mine got deleted for me. Oh, I did it myself. <laughs> after, after I became a teacher, I was like, shit. Okay. <laughs> She's the sole woman in the conservative shadow cabinet. So the shadow party, but she's in the head group. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, One thing that we should note right now is this is like after World War II, Cold War. She's super anti-communist. Just like most of the world. She had a lot to say about it all the time, specifically in taxes. And she's a very capitalist like being low tax being capitalist is an incentive for hard work Mm -hmm. like that's just how it is but she's also one of the few conservatives who supported a bill to decriminalize male homosexuality oh and she wanted a bill to legalize abortion and she wanted to ban hair coursing which is when the dogs chase an actual rabbit (gasps) Around the course, she's like, "Can we just use a fucking fake rabbit?" Yeah, I like that. Like those three okay. things. I'm like, "You're so fucking cool." She's here's so the, cool. Here's the thing about Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> I'm gonna say right now. Ugh, I'm confused about it her. It seems to me like she just has her opinions. Some of them are right. Some of them are wrong. But like, she goes with it. Politicians in America are so worried about re-election all the time that like they don't get the chance to be this weird. And be kind of flim-flammy. You yeah. know what I'm saying? And like, I also think that's a problem with America because I think people in Great Britain are more independent. Yes. I think they have a better multi-party system where you can be a little weird on your opinions. Right. And, and you don't, we have, don't have to be have like, that. well, this is what the party stands for. So right. This is what I should stand for. Because, like, she's really 
like she is running the gamut in a sense that I don't understand. And I think it's because I'm so used to this political party of like every choice you make doesn't represent you, but represents the whole party. party. Right. And if you don't fall in line, you will not be reelected. You will be out of a job, which I don't think is good. Well, it's just because right after that, she supports capital punishment. What? Yeah. The birching and all that. Yeah. And and then she also votes against relaxing divorce laws. And it's like, you, those things are all so opposed, but she just has an opinion and sticks to it, which I'm like proud of her, but I'm also like, this is insane. Yeah. I want to understand it. Yeah. She's wild, but I like that she has the freedom in this government to be wild. Yes. You know, I really do like that. So she also supports a colleague at this time about not like promoting immigration from some of the UK Commonwealth. And in 1991, the Today Show asks her about it. And she's like, look, I still agree with those immigration policies, but it's regrettable the way we talked about it, which is really her saying, I really believe those people shouldn't be allowed to immigrate <laughs> to the UK, but I'm sad that the terms we used didn't age well. Oh, <laughs> like that's what my she was saying God. pretty much. Like, I don't want those other people in the UK, but I'm sorry that you're like sad about the way I said it. <laughs> Margaret, I can't, which I also get like the UK is small. That's why we went to Australia to let them have an island of prisoners. (laughs) (laughs) Like the UK is crazy. How did they conquer the world? I don't know. (laughs) I'm still confused on that point. Mm -hmm. Okay. As a member of the shadow cabinet, she took part in this international visitor leadership tour, which is like, I guess, continued education for the cabinet members. (laughs) She spends six weeks in the U.S. and, like, she goes around to, like, all these different foundations. She's meeting with, like, a Nelson Rockefeller. She's, like, really becoming ingrained. But 1970, she is in the cabinet and they decide she's going to be the Secretary of State for Education and Science. And she just... God, she should not be in charge of education. Oh, She just, like, they wanted comprehensive school there, like compulsory comprehensive school, which is, like, you don't get into school based on whether or not your parents are a lord Uh or whether or not they have money Uh or whether or not blah, blah, blah. But she was like, no, school should be based on merit. But we know the problem is that merit comes with parental involvement. And, like, usually the wealthy get the higher merit schools. And, like, they were yeah. trying to push for compulsory public schools like we have in the United States where, like, you go in your neighborhood. But she was just very against that. Do they have that now? They do. But oh, so she was going for, like, a tiered program oh. where it's, like, when you finish junior high, you go into, like, X, Y, or Z. Like, okay. the high, the middle, the low. Okay. Which is, like, white collar, blue collar. You know what I mean? It's just really discriminatory to make that decision for a kid when they're 12 and also when they have no control over over a lot of elements of their own life the factors are like bananas if ella fitzgerald was put into that situation you know what i'm saying like yeah it's hard yeah and i mean okay i am i do it so in the america it's called school choice um And there's so many discussions about it because school choice would be what our parents did. They sent us to private schools instead of the ones in the city. 
But what happens when you do that is you take the kids with money and parental involvement out of the neighborhood they should be in, and it furthers the segregation lines that Mm -hmm. we were trying to get rid of. Okay. So it's like charter schools, magnet schools, those things are great, but they're also really bad for the public school community because it segregates an entire community of kids that can't afford it. Mm -hmm. So she is just being herself like she's like right, you know yeah. it's a hard choice like nancy devos who i don't agree with is very pro school choice okay so problem for me but i'm an educator so i don't know if anybody else cares about that anyway <laughs> so as usual the government is trying to cut funding to school cut funding cut funding she's the secretary of education she's like okay cut funding but don't take it away from the curriculum don't take it away from the teachers that's insane take it away from the school lunches what she eliminates free milk no and in eliminating free milk people start calling her margaret thatcher milk snatcher (laughs) (laughs) i like that (laughs) and she almost left politics over this really it broke her heart that people thought that she was disenfranchising children when she's like really trying to put money into like actual educational things, but schools are daycare also. Right. So like they like, need food. <laughs> Some kids need food. And she just like was blind to that, I think. Yeah. Which is sad. That is sad. So in the seventies, she became the conservative party leader of the opposition. And that was a hard fight because people were not down on her, even in her party. And a television critic compared her to, her voice to a cat sliding down a blackboard so they called her shrill pretty much yeah they called her shrill and then they arranged lessons for her to get a voice coach oh my god so she would sound less like herself i mean so much like hillary clinton i can't believe it yeah i'm also thinking of like that elizabeth woman from theranos yeah like that was a thing she felt like she needed to do to make it in the field that she wanted to right because women have to change themselves constantly <laughs> to, <laughs> to, to be in the man's sphere. world, to be in the patriarchy. Yeah. But she was doing her job successfully. She's meeting with Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter. She visited Iran. She decided anytime she traveled, she would travel without the shadow foreign minister because she was like, I'm a woman. I'm going to speak for myself. I don't want yeah. people looking over my shoulder and asking him if it's fine to talk to me. Mm-hmm. She gave a big speech in 1976 called British Awake. And it was criticizing the Soviet Union and saying they were bent on world dominance. The USSR publishes a piece like the next week called Iron Lady Raises Fears. And this is obviously in relation to the Iron Curtain. But instead of tearing her down, Margaret embraces the epitaph saying in a speech, I stand before you tonight in my red star chiffon evening gown. My face softly made up my fair hair gently waved the iron lady of the western world (laughs) and like people are cheering (laughs) she is being crazy katie crazy she is totally fine with them being like you're a nut yeah she doesn't care at all and i do not get like soft british humor but this is funny yeah (laughs) this is pretty funny so then On May 4th, 1979, Margaret Thatcher is elected as the 
first female prime minister in the UK fucking ever. And she is referred to as the most powerful woman in the world. Oh my God. In the world. And like there's a scene of her walking in, waving at people, and her husband stands like a couple feet behind her, very much like QE2 and the Duke of Edinburgh. Like they really have it down. Some people say she's the greatest prime minister of all time. Some people say she destroyed the UK. <laughs> Who knows? As prime minister, uh, Margaret had to meet weekly with Queen Elizabeth II, and their relationship became under intense scrutiny. And if you've seen The Crown, they do such a wonderful, delicate job of showing this. They didn't love each other, and they didn't hate each other. They were the same age, only six months apart. They had similar positions of power. They're surrounded by men, the same government, the same rules. So, yeah, there's a little bit of a rivalry, but it's just two tough women that aren't willing to let their guards down. Yeah. Margaret has an attitude towards the queen that's kind of ambivalent. She's like, I work to get here. You sit on your throne and do what you got to do. Queen Elizabeth II is a little bit jealous. Like, I have all these political opinions, but I'm not allowed to say them because you're actually in charge, even though I've been doing this since before World War II and I was fucking 17 years old. Right. So they're really kind of having it out. Um, but Margaret Thatcher was reverent she would bow she was very respectful she did what she was supposed to do and the newspaper just could not get over the cat fight scenario but eventually margaret thatcher came out to the news to get them to stop and just said quote i always found the queen's attitude towards the work of the government absolutely correct stories of clashes between two powerful women are just too good not to make up how cool that's so cool. Like, yeah. you're making this shit up because you love us so much. Yeah. I, yeah. Good That's for great. her. Yeah. I like that. So she makes a lot of bold moves about taxation. She's like, the taxes are getting increased, but on, like, some things, decreased on other things. But she kind of, like, increases some taxes on education. And because of that, she becomes the first prime minister that went to Oxford that doesn't get an honorary doctorate. <gasps> Oh, and that's solely that's because she's a face. solely because she's a woman. Yeah. Like it, they would not have done that to a male prime minister yeah. who who went there. It's like you. It was like when Condoleezza Rice. They're like, we don't want to give you the green jacket at the Masters. They gave one to every man, Wait. every Secretary of State. Condoleezza Rice didn't get one. No, she did eventually, but oh. they didn't want to give her <laughs> one because um. Who was the prime minister before the secretary of state before her? Mar um, the first female secretary of state, Madeleine Albright. Yeah, Madeleine Albright, not interested in golf, didn't matter. Okay, Condoleezza Rice cared yeah. and plays golf. Yeah, and was like, "This is important to me. I want to be invited. I want my jacket." Mm -hmm. Like, and they were just like, they eventually gave in, but it was like a big deal because all the other male secretaries of state got that anyway. She often, and that story might be completely made up, she, <laughs> she often used her wit in Parliament as a mother and a previous housewife to describe taxes to the men by talking about groceries and laundry and household items and metaphors that threw them off guard. They mm -hmm. didn't get it. But she was not going to break. 
Her party, the conservative Whig party, has a lot to say, but half of the men in the party did not want her in charge, and they got the nickname of the Wets instead of the Whigs, <laughs> and they're asking for a policy U-turn on her taxes. And she came out and said, U-turn if you want to. This lady is not for turning. <laughs> love her she's like i like my stuff i'm gonna do it but she said shit like that all the time um at one point (laughs) she said i'm extraordinarily patient provided i get my own way in the end (laughs) like really she really knew what she wanted and thought she was always right yeah she had the lowest record of job approval of any prime minister in history oh my up to that point. They hated her. Inflation is low. Unemployment is high. There's ups and downs. She is insane. But she wasn't the prime minister once. She wasn't the prime minister twice. She was the prime minister three times oh my god for 11 years from 1979 to 1990 and that's a big span of time that's a lot that's happening in the world longest reigning prime minister in the 20th century what in england but there are rough times yeah it's It's just so weird. weird because everyone just seems to hate her so much like kept getting voted in all right even though they hate her yeah it's a hard time, too. She's dealing with the Vietnam War. She's dealing with taxes. There's riots because of these taxes. There's a terrorist attack on the Iranian embassy for six days. She comes in guns blazing. Everybody's like, yo, this bitch is hard. <laughs> then she's dealing with industry, and she thinks unions are bad. Oh. She's like, come on. <laughs> then she's dealing with Argentina trying to take over the Falkland Islands. And she's like, no, 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 no. Those are British. Guns blazing again. Everybody loves her again. Oh, my God. You're so tough. She wants to privatize business. She's like, get out of the public. I'm done with this whole socialist shit. Bring in the capitalism. Privatizes railroads. Privatizes the steel industry. She is an active supporter of climate protection, starts talking about climate change, starts getting rid of acid rain. Like, she's being wild. Then she's really close to Ronald Reagan. They're Uh -uh. bestie besties. She's, like, hanging out with him all the time. They have all the same beliefs. And then she gets a little bit mad about when he invades Granada without talking to her but like they're still like best friends she's also dealing with this conflict in Northern Ireland where all the prisoners are going on hunger strikes and she's like okay let them fucking starve then oh. <laughs> like oh I don't care God. they're prisoners if they want to go on a hunger strike let them but because of that in this Northern Ireland situation she dealt with a lot of internal stuff between Wales and Scotland and Ireland like they always do over there yeah. it's like England's on top and everybody else is just gathering around There's an attempt at her life. So in 1984, a bomb is planted weeks in advance, a time bomb in a hotel that she's going to stay at to give a speech. October 12th, 1984. She's staying there. She's up sitting in her living room, like doing her work because it's like a multi-room hotel or whatever. Mm -hmm. All of her like um, cabinet and stuff is there. Bomb goes off. Um, destroys her bathroom she's fine five people die <gasps> in the cabinet including the wife of one of her cabinet members it's a huge oh deal my God. she like 
leaves the hotel. It's the middle of the night. And they're like, what are you going to do about your speech tomorrow? And she pretty much turns around to the press and goes, everything's going on as normal. And her public ratings went up again because they're like, this woman is not scared. And it was the Irish Republican army that Uh, put the bomb in. I also feel like that's that classic Winston Churchill people like thing that Mm -hmm. people in Great Britain love of like, they keep calm, carry on. Like we have to keep moving. Mm -hmm. Like I think that people over there really respect that, you know, of like, no, we just have to keep going. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, and even like, she didn't have an easy go at it personally either. One of her sons is a pretty wealthy businessman and he does a lot of international trade and he goes missing. <gasps> now, it, it's all over the news. There's a great part on the crown where like Queen Elizabeth is like trying to console her and be like, you don't have to be here today. Like, yeah. And her son's only missing for like a week or something like that. But he is missing in like the Middle East. Like yeah. it's not an easy place to be missing. Um, but there was a big to do about it in the press. And I don't know, like, I think anytime, you know, you're that high up, anything that happens is a big deal. Mm -hmm. So I could talk about her time in office forever, but I won't because it's just an entire history of the Western world. She's a part of the Middle East, the, the Cold War, USSR, apartheid in South Africa, what's going on with Hong Kong. She had her hands in all of it for 11 years as the prime minister. She's crazy. So... She's doing all of this. Very low approval rating. She insists that she didn't care about poll ratings because she's like, look at my unbeaten record. Like, I don't give a shit about Mm -hmm. the polls. But it was hard on everyone, even her cabinet members. And eventually, her original cabinet members start to resign from her cabinet. Mm. And then when her last original cabinet member resigns and gives a speech attacking her attitude, it really breaks her. She starts by saying, I'm still going to run for my fourth term fight on and fight to win but her cabinet because they're the only ones that can vote for her it's not the public they kind of convince her she needs to resign Mm. so she drives to buckingham palace because the first person you have to tell if you're going to resign is the queen they have their meeting she calls some other world leaders and then on november 28th she left downing street in tears She regarded her ousting as a betrayal from her party. And her resignation actually shocked everybody outside of Britain. Everybody's like, she's a really fucking great leader. Like, she goes to all the things. She talks to all the different. She travels to the Soviet Union. She talks to all the people in the Middle East. Everybody respects her. Like, what's the deal? She returned to the back benches of Parliament for a bit. I just don't think she was ready to go. Mm-hmm. But two years later, in 1992, she retired from the House of Commons. She then became the first former prime minister to set up a foundation, the Margaret Thatcher Foundation. She wrote two volumes of a memoir, The Downing Street Years and The Path of Power. She was hired as a consultant to an environmental organization company. She earned $50,000 for every speech she gave. She spoke about the Bosnian conflict and conflicts all over the world. She served as the honorary chancellor for the College of William and Mary in Virginia and as a more like hands-on chancellor for the University of Buckingham that she had established in 1976. She always 
had a say in what the prime minister was doing because everybody wanted to hear her opinion. Even though she was out of office, it's like, okay, what does Margaret think about that? She was more popular, actually, out of office than she was in office, (laughs) even though she was super controversial. Like, at one point, the dictator of Chile got put in jail because of human rights violations, but she, like, loves him, so she was like, let him out of jail. Oh, my God. (laughs) Margaret! Jesus. In 2004, she traveled to the United States to attend the funeral service for Ronald Reagan. Then she flew to California with Reagan's family and friends and was there for the opening of his personal library. She then was there for the five-year anniversary memorial service in 2006 for the 9-11 attacks. She met with Vice President Dick Cheney and Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice. In 2007, she became the first living prime minister to be honored with a statue that stands opposite of Winston Churchill. Oh, my God. Which, like, what a fucking honor. Yeah. And then she said, I might have preferred iron, but brass will do. (laughs) (laughs) Downing Street now has a portrait of her hanging on the walls, and Queen Elizabeth offered the famous royal portrait artist to do her portrait. The same woman who does, who did the Queen Mother, who mm-hmm. did Queen Elizabeth's portraits. In 2005, Margaret's daughter, Carol, revealed that her mother had dementia. Mm. She couldn't read very long anymore because she couldn't remember the beginning of the sentence when she got oh, to the end. No. She kept confusing Yugoslavia with the Falkland Islands in conversation, and she couldn't remember that her husband had passed away. On April 8, 2013, at the age of 87, Margaret Thatcher passed away after suffering from a small stroke. The news was received differently all around Britain. Some people mourned her, hailing her as the greatest peacetime prime minister of all time. And others, very uncouth, went out and celebrated her death. Didn't they sing, like, Ding Dong the Witches? Yeah, it was really bad, the way that they treated her death. Because, I mean, people really did hate her. Yeah, I I imagine it's going to be very similar when Donald Trump dies. And I will not worry about it. I was just going to... Make I will be comparison. like that. I, I will, will be like that. Yeah. I will rejoice when mm-hmm. he leaves this earth. And mm-hmm. like, I guess I get it. Like, yeah. I, yeah. You know, like I've never been in an experience like that until him. I agree. Yeah. I, I like, I don't mind the Bush family. No. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, they're nuts. <laughs> you know, he did some nuts. horrible yeah. things, but <laughs> yeah, like I like They're not my favorite but... people politically, but I don't think that they're terrible. Yeah. I totally agree. It's a very weird situation. Mm-hmm. Um, Queen Elizabeth II and the Duke of Edinburgh attended her funeral, making it only the second time the queen, during her reign, attended the funeral of a prime minister, the mm-hmm. other one obviously being mm-hmm. Winston Churchill. She is one of the longest-serving prime minister in Britain's history and the longest-serving of the 20th century. She's one of the most popular leaders in actual parliament because she got 40 million votes in parliament. That Just those people voted for her at least 40 million times yeah. to get her up to where she could be. She has the historical hat-trick of being elected three times in a row. She's listed in the 100... Gr- 
greatest Britons. She is listed in the 100 most important people of the 20th century. She's been played in countless movies and television shows. There are so many books written about her. I could not even like stomach it this week. I just kept flipping through books like a crazy person. (laughs) The Falkland Islands celebrates a yearly Margaret Thatcher Day. And she has been given tons of royal awards for merit and scholarship, etc. But I wanted to end with one of her most famous quotes that we don't often attribute to her. We just say it. Uh, it was in a speech to in um, 1965 to the National Union of Townswomen, and it was in May. And she said, in politics, if you want to s- have something said, ask a man. If you want to have something done... Ask a woman. <laughs> and that is... I didn't know she said that. I love that. Margaret Thatcher's story. Wow. What a bananas person. Yeah, she is a bananas person. Uh, I can't make heads or tails of her. A roller coaster of emotions. <laughs> <laughs> but I will say she's very herself. She is... She's very herself. She is herself. Like, and it's very interesting because, like you said earlier, there's no space for that in American politics, and I wish mm-hmm. there was. I wish there was, too. Yeah. All right. Well, now we need to talk about these two women in conversation with each other in a little segment we like to call Just the Two of Us. Are you ready for (laughs) the um, horoscopes? Yes. Okay. So I'll read Margaret's and then I'll hand you Ella's. Okay. Okay. So Margaret is a Libra. She was like Casey. Yes. Well, yeah. Oh, right, because you're a Scorpio? Yeah. Libra, yeah. You're we're, on the- we're on the, we have the same birthday, right. but we're on the cusp, right. so he takes Libra. You confuse me. Okay. <laughs> so Margaret's a Libra, October 13th, 1925, and it said, On that date in history, a strong urge for the social life may find you out and about. However, you will walk a fine line today between good company and disapproval. So beware. <laughs> you could find yourself working against the values of another, going against the flow. I've never heard anything more accurate in my life. Okay. Ella's right below that. She's a Taurus. Spooky. Okay. In bold. (laughs) Ella Taurus, April 25th, 1917. Gives you great attention, persuasiveness, ambition, creativity, and originality. You go your own way and look for new methods of doing things. You are determined, imaginative, keen to travel, and optimistic. This transition also lends itself to great opportunities for creating campaigns geared at women. I okay, everybody. That's insane, isn't it? That's insanely accurate. What? I know. So I'm sorry. Okay, so let's be clear. Are those the horoscopes for them today? No. Or that, them that day, the day they were born. The day they were born. What? I looked them up for the exact birth date that they were born, year and day. That's crazy. Isn't that crazy? Okay. (laughs) That's because if you swapped those, they wouldn't make sense. No sense. Okay. That's really fucking cool. Okay. So we got to keep doing this. Friday the 13th season. Everybody be ready. We got to see the tracks. Okay. (laughs) So these two are very interesting. Like Ella starts with dance. Mm -hmm. Margaret starts with science. Mm -hmm. And they grow from there. They learn their worth on this world yes they're very smart they're very ambitious but they come from very different backgrounds and with different opportunities laid at their feet and i also think that they both get involved in very complicated communities you know what i'm saying Mm -hmm. and that's why i think it's 
just interesting that they take the paths that they do because like not a lot of people understand the world of jazz not a lot of people understand government in general let alone the uk system literally it's bananas it's so crazy but they get so involved in these worlds that it becomes their entire life right like ella is not separate from jazz and margaret thatcher is not separate from uk politics that is just their whole fucking life it's their personality their job became their personality because they really didn't have much of a personal life, either of them. No. Which I thought was kind of cool that these were two women very undefined by men. They were. They were very undefined by men in their personal lives. Mm-hmm. But I think they were very mm. defined by men in their occupational lives, which yes. was really hard for both of them. Because they both, in their stories, came in contact with one woman, really. Uh-huh. And it's like, Ella's fighting with Billy. And Margaret's fighting with Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. And it's like, that doesn't need to be that way. No. And, and it necess- didn't necessarily happen that way. But it's just interesting to think about how, like, sometimes you are surrounded by strong, supportive men. But every woman should be surrounded by strong, supportive men. You can't just pick one and be like, she's the one. Yeah. (laughs) That's so dumb. Right. No, I think you're totally right. And it it made me sad in Ella's story that, like, her being in the chick web band was, like, such an anomaly that, like, she would be surrounded by these people who took care of her and, like, were, like, family instead of, like, predators. Exactly. (laughs) You know? And it, like, that bummed me out that it's so notable that these this group of men was trying to take care of her and be protective of her rather than exploiting her was so that's a thing of note. Right. You know, and I am thinking a lot about Margaret Thatcher and like she is also yet in this boys club. And again, I, there are a lot of things that, yeah, I don't agree with, but she was not being told what to do. Mm. You know, she wasn't uh, a pawn of someone else's political agenda. It didn't seem at least, you no. know, I'm not involved in the system, but like it seemed like she was like, yeah, I'm all, all over the place and who the fuck cares? Because yeah. like, that's what I think. And I'm not, I'm not someone that they placed here so that they, they could say they have a woman in government. What she I, was, I don't think that a lot of men wanted her to be prime minister. Oh, no, I don't think they did. <laughs> no, I don't think many you people know, did at all. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think, though, what's, what's interesting is that Ella Fitzgerald seemed to be more palatable. Oh, I think, yes. like, she gets her honorary doctorates. She, well, she, and she had one from Oxford. Yes. I didn't mention it, but she has one from and Oxford. And she, she got her Presidential Medal of Freedom. Mm-hmm. She, she was treated as if she was a hero. And it's like, because Margaret Thatcher had her own opinions Mm -hmm. and was very controversial. She didn't get her honorary doctorate. Mm -hmm. She was never made a dame commander. She's not knighted. So many people like her would become a sir. You know, she's not. She's Lady Margaret Thatcher, but she's not Dame Margaret Thatcher. And she was never given that title, even though she spent once a week with Queen Elizabeth for 11 years. That bites me the wrong way. I don't like that. Why is Maggie Smith a dame for being an actress? And yeah. she's not. That's annoying to me. Well, and, and I also, love Maggie Smith. And also, I think it speaks to like you know the queen is supposed to be like very neutral, neutral, and that points to that she's not right. You know, and I think that that's the other hard thing about these two women working in these systems that are not really designed to support them. You know, and that are designed to criticize them on things that have nothing to do with their jobs. You know, it's like. I do feel like Margaret Thatcher is highly criticized for like her sharp appearance Mm -hmm. and, you know, she's 
called the Iron Lady and all this stuff. And Ella Fitzgerald is always criticized for her looks. And like people say that she's not attractive and homely and she's matronly and like all this stuff. And it's like a part of it is very frustrating. It's like, can we stop talking about their appearance and start talking about the job that they're doing? Like, and that's frustrating. But do you know why people love Ella Fitzgerald so much? Unless she was singing, she kept her mouth shut. One she's and and that was very purposeful on her part. I mean, she literally said that she was yeah, like, "I I'm not don't, doing interviews. I don't want to do that. You know, I don't want to get involved in it." And you know, there are some people like, and I think about like Nina Simone, who like some people regard as like, "Oh, like she's so dramatic. She calls all these issues and all this stuff, and she's so outspoken." But it's also like. Okay, but some of the people in that scene did have to speak up. And, like, Ella did it in her own way. You know, like, she won that great lawsuit against Pan Am. Like, she was on that tour that, like, wouldn't stay in the, you know, or, like, wouldn't perform in venues that didn't have, you know, desegregated audiences. Mm -hmm. She just did it in a less vocal way. And I think that that's how you become an icon you know like i think like margaret thatcher's like you know like a legend and like she's notorious but it's funny to me that this homeless girl from harlem is more respected in a way than this woman who led the uk for all these years because it's like her job didn't allow her to be silent and what men want is you to be quiet yeah and Mm -hmm. they want you to like it's the same way as like Okay, Colin Kaepernick, like, taking the knee. Mm -hmm. It's like, we want you to protest peacefully, but not like that. But not like that. Yeah, exactly. So so it's like, Ella, it was like she was protesting the way people wanted her to. Mm -hmm. Quietly, respectfully, while you're doing what we like you to do. Which doesn't make her a bad person. No, because that that was in her comfort zone, too. Like, she was like, I'm not as bold and brash as Nina Simone. Like, (laughs) I don't want to do that. She wanted to do what she was doing, but it's like, you know, you can't get elected as the first prime minister, female prime minister of the UK if you keep your mouth shut. Exactly. You have to be big and bold. You have to be, and people are going to hate you. Yeah. Man, these women are on the complete opposite sides of the spectrum when it comes to likability. Hon- honestly. And, like, I don't know. They've both affected the world in such a way, too, that, like, I think it proves that you can work within your comfort zone to make a big impact. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Because I think that sometimes women feel like they need to be very outspoken, doing things all the time, mm. putting the, putting themselves in uncomfortable situations. Like, you know, like I know like for me, like I took a step back from a lot of social media stuff because if I posted anything, like I would have such high anxiety and I would make myself sick to my stomach over like, what are people going to like, how are people going to respond to this? You know, and it wasn't worth it to me. And I don't think it was worth it to, to Ella Mm -hmm. to, you know, be as bold as other people, you know, and I still think she was a bold person. And I think that other women can just stomach it more than others. You know, I think we need all kinds of like progressive action. And I think progressive action can come quietly and peacefully Mm -hmm. i think it can come from a strong religious group i think it can come from brash atheists yeah progressive action is movement forward Mm -hmm. regardless of where it comes from Mm -hmm. and i think that both of these women were about forward movement yeah i totally agree yeah because neither of them were just sitting still and letting fucked up things like well (laughs) margaret thatcher was I'm not going to say she didn't let fucked up things happen because she did. She did. Uh, but 
they know, weren't content with the world around them. Yes. And that they is were a great willing way to, put it. to push. Mm-hmm. I really like and and their horoscopes are spot spot on. I'm so curious to see if that's going to continue. I know. So we'll see. Maybe we'll make a believer out of our listeners of, knows, <laughs> of astrology. <laughs> Man, okay, are you ready to toast? I am ready. Uh, okay. Allie, who would you like to toast this evening? I just, I think being a strong-willed, outspoken woman is very hard. Mm-hmm. So I want to toast to all of the women who know their ideas are right, even when they're not. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. Who who do you want to toast to? I'm going to toast the ladies that keep their class. That's a hard thing to do. And it's very opposite. (laughs) And I just, I, no one thinks about Ella Fitzgerald and has bad feelings. And that's a hard thing to do for any person, let alone a black woman coming to fame in the 40s. Like, that's insane. Really? Yeah, really. And I just want to toast her because. I think that she just did such an incredible job of being herself and being classy. And I love her. Mm, so good cheers. for her. Good for Ella. <laughs> All right. What are you enjoying in pop culture this week? Okay. So producer and I both read Daisy Jones and the Six on the beach. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I told you a little about it. Yeah. No? no, I just saw you reading okay. it, and I was curious because I saw you reading it the first half of the week and him reading it the second uh-huh. half. <laughs> okay, so it is a mockumentary-style book, so it's supposed Weird. to be like a real documentary uh-huh. of a band from the 70s that broke up, uh-huh. but they're separately interviewing all the members of the band. So it's written as if it's like Gary, and they say what Gary thought. And then Karen, and this is what Karen thought. So it's almost like you're watching a documentary where somebody comes in. Okay, our friend's documentary happened recently. Uh And one of the guys comes in and he's like, okay, so I'm not going to give any names, but somebody (laughs) stole a bench. And then the next scene, he goes, so me and Jeff stole a bench. And it's like a separate person. And the book is written like that. But you don't get to see what the questions are. So you're piecing together the whole time. Like, that's fun. How did this band get famous? Why did they break up? So when you first start reading it, you're like, this is kind of weird. Yeah. It is so artistically sound, I could not suggest it enough. Yeah, that sounds great. It's great. There are female members of the band. There are male members. There are drugs. There's sex. There's fighting. There's cheating. And there's people getting clean and getting their lives together. It is so good. That sounds great. I just, I, I, I loved the idea of like somebody being like, so he just came in and he was pissed at me. And then the next person's like, I came in and he was fucking snorting coke. So I was pissed uh, at him. <laughs> it's like so fun. I adore that it. awesome. I, I love it. And I yeah. just can't believe it was written with so much finesse. Yeah. That you love all the characters and you realize where they're coming from. So yeah. everybody, Daisy Jones and the Six. And okay. then the same author wrote like so many other books. And I enjoyed it and producer enjoyed Ooh. it. And we like opposite things. Yeah. <laughs> so everybody will like it. Okay. What are you enjoying? So I'm going to recommend a movie that I was kind of forced to watch the other night because so fiance and I came back from vacation to our power being out. 
one of our trees fell on our neighbor's house. Our internet's obviously down as well. And our internet remained to be down long after our power was restored. So it was like a very, this is a very upsetting week for us. (laughs) So we had to rely on the classic bunny ears, but which normally it's fine because like we turn on the laugh channel. Uh, It's a, they only play home improvement, which is fine because I, it's a very nostalgic show for me. Jake's in charge. Jake's so. in charge of the network, apparently. <laughs> um, and But that channel, like, wasn't coming through. And I was, like, really upset. So I'm, like, clicking through the channels, all local channels, on the bunny ears. And I see, you know how, like, the title of the movie appears at the beginning of a movie? Yeah. And I'm like, ooh, that means the movie's starting. And it's Lethal Weapon 2. Stop. I literally caught it as soon as it started. So Casey and I watched Lethal Weapon 2 beginning to end on the bunny ears, having to run into the kitchen when we needed something on a commercial break. It felt so nostalgic. I had never seen any of the Lethal Lethal Weapon (gasps) movies. They're so good. I had never seen any of them. They're good. I I said I screamed earlier in the show when I met with awkward moments, and this was not an awkward moment, but I was screaming at how crazy that movie is. They're great. And apparently someone said, like, Lethal Weapon 2 is one of the favorites. Yes. So it was great. It's the opposite of the Indiana Jones scenario. Yeah. It involves uh, some harsh words with South Africa because uh, (laughs) I I was blown away by how fucking funny this movie was. I really was. Mel Gibson is a lunatic. (laughs) The whole movie makes no sense. He literally... I'm sorry. I'm not going to give it away. I'm not going to give it away. No. I'm not going to give away. Make everybody watch Lethal Weapon 2. <laughs> <laughs> don't bother with the first one. I didn't, and I was fine. So yeah. You don't need the first one. It's okay. You really don't. Uh, so, yeah, Lethal Weapon 2. It was amazing. Uh, I'm not going to recommend <laughs> CSI Miami, which we had to watch the next night. <laughs> Horatio Kane. <laughs> that show... It was the only thing we could get a good read on. What on about the antenna. Eric? I love Eric. Which one is Eric? He's the Hispanic boy. He was, I guess, this is later in the series because he was out of the crew. He came back in as like a private investigator for a highfalutin lawyer. I love Eric. And I was really upset. I was like, I thought he was part of the crew. And now he's like filming Horatio. Google this guy. Eric was about his death, but also it's bananas because they get the cases solved in like eight hours, which is unrealistic. Okay. So anyways, white pants, there's so many (laughs) white pants for a crime scene, too many white pants. And leather loafers. (laughs) So, okay. I love you guys. Thank you for listening. We'll see you in the future. Most likely next week. We have another great week. Tune in for more exciting stories and more horoscopes, which I'm very excited about for this season. It'll be fun. Um, and, if you want to follow us on social media, please do. We're at Hearst Around the Rocks everywhere. Um, you can come and join us on Tuesdays where we post cocktail recipes. Mm. Uh, and sometimes we have author interviews on Tuesdays, so that's very exciting as well. Mm. We're always keeping you up to date on the latest books that are available, which is really fun. Ooh, and my cousin is having an art show yes. at the end of August. So if you're near Maryland, it's at the Chesapeake Art Center on August 26th, and it's from 6 to 8 is the opening day of the show. And she painted me. 
I'm, I didn't know that. I am one of the, so the whole show is about women's mental health and I, my portrait is being sold for $800. Oh my God. That's amazing. With my story next to it. I love that. So anyway, I'm going to see a picture of me, which I haven't seen yet. And I'm oh. like really kind of nervous. Yeah. That's so exciting. All right. Well, support your local artists. Uh, I'll send you all pictures. Show. And if you don't want to spend $800 for this picture <laughs> and you want a picture of me, she sells prints as well for much Very cheaper. And all the money is going to like a women's mental health thing. I love because that. women are diagnosed with um, mental health problems much less than men because they just tell women to get over it. Amazing. If you didn't know. Okay. So we love you. Join us. And if you want a little extra of all this that's going on, join us on Patreon for as little as a dollar a month. But most of all, we want you to never forget that well-behaved women are not a part of the fucking wig party. No, they're not. (laughs) And they really make history. Goodbye. listening to her story on the rocks we are independently produced by 1986 entertainment and proudly recorded in baltimore maryland if there's a woman in history you would like us to cover you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com you can also message us on twitter or instagram we post all of our cocktail recipes on tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us see you next week bye